I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode four of the Failed Critic Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Norman. I'm joined, as I always am, by James Diamond. Hello. And Jerry McCauley. Hello. This week, we've tweaked the schedule a little bit. We're going to start off with the good, the bad, and the ugly, and end with our new release review, which is this week's Dark Shadows, directed by Tim Burton and starring Johnny Depp just to see how that works. Yeah, over to James for a little bit on how the podcast has been doing. Yeah, uh, well, we've passed 300 downloads overnight in total. So that's that's been three, episode, three episodes. We've got 300 downloads. Really, really pleased with that. Um, thank you again to everyone who's downloaded and thank you to everyone who's got in touch with us and uh, given us little clues and hints as to how they would like to see the pod proceed. Uh, we've also got a Facebook page now, so if everyone would like, anyone with a Facebook account, which is pretty much everyone under 40 these days, surely, if you go to facebook.com slash failedcritic, you can go and you can like that, so you'll automatically be told whenever we've got a new uh, episode up. Uh, obviously, still contact us at the Failed Critic on Twitter, and you can uh, find the blog at uh, thefailedcritic.wordpress.com. Okay, let's start off then with the good, the bad, or the ugly, change to usual. Go through some of the films that we've been watching this week, uh, where we've been watching them, and what we made of them. So, Jerry, if you'd like to start. Okay. Um, unfortunately, this week, the only bad slash ugly film that I watched, uh, without wanting to give too much away as to my opinion later on, was Dark Shadows. So I'm going to have to come up with some good films, I'm afraid, this week. Uh, at the risk of re- reducing my credibility thus far on the podcast, I'm going to have to admit that up until the other day, I had never seen Jaws before. Ooh. Yeah. It was one of those films that whenever it was on, I always missed the first 10 minutes, and I kind of knew what happened in it anyway because everyone always talks about it. So mm. it's one of those that I never really bothered to buy on DVD or anything. Finally watched it anyway. Uh, absolutely brilliant film. So anybody who, like me, I don't think I need to go into any more detail on this, but anybody who, like me, who's not watched it, go and watch it. It's bloody brilliant. Yeah. Um, think... Sorry, Jerry. On. No, I was just going to say, it's my Rocky, that is, actually. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I know, I, I think everyone should have seen Jaws by now. I didn't realise you hadn't, but I'm glad you have now. There's a, apparently there's a brand new restored Blu-ray coming out in the summer, which I'm, I'm already, uh, waiting to buy. I can't wait to get that. Yeah, um, I think some of the camera shots on it were, I was, I wasn't expecting the camera work to be quite as, as great as it was. Do you know what I mean? I was expecting it to just be a sort of standard, uh, 
enjoyable watch, but nothing really too brilliant from a visual perspective. But it really was excellent. So um, it was just great all round. I don't really need to go into any more detail on that. I think most people will, will have seen it and don't need me to review it. A new film that I did see this week, however, was 21 Jump Street, which I thought was really, really good. Not as good as everyone's been telling me. <laughs> not being, uh, you know, the funniest film I've seen in years, but I was not expecting it to be as funny as it was. It really had a lot of laugh out loud moments. There was a good dynamic going on between Jonah Hill and um, Channing Tatum, who was actually surprisingly good. I've never given him any credit before, so uh, he shocked me in that film. He absolutely, he was, he was a revelation considering where he's come from. It, yeah, again, it wasn't a Peter yeah. Sellers esque performance or any, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, but. He was very, very funny. And he was probably funnier than Jonah Hill for a lot yeah, of that film. I think I he, he played it. He was really good at sort of not quite dead. Welcome to episode four of the Failed Critic Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Norman. I'm joined, as I always am, by James Diamond. Hello. And Jerry McCauley. Hello. This week, we've tweaked the schedule a little bit. We're going to start off with the good, the bad, and the ugly, and end with our new release review, which is this week's Dark Shadows, directed by Tim Burton and starring Johnny Depp just to see how that works. Yeah, over to James for a little bit on how the podcast has been doing. Yeah, uh, well, we've passed 300 downloads overnight in total. So that's that's been three episodes. Three episodes, we've got 300 downloads. Really, really pleased with that. Um, thank you again to everyone who's downloaded and thank you to everyone who's got in touch with us and uh, given us little clues and hints as to how they would like to see the pod proceed. Uh, we've also got a Facebook page now, so if everyone would like, everyone with a Facebook account, which is pretty much everyone under 40 these days, surely, if you go to facebook.com slash failedcritic, you can go and you can like that, so you'll automatically be told whenever we've got a new uh, episode up. Uh, obviously, still contact us at the Failed Critic on Twitter, and you can uh, find the blog at uh, thefailedcritic.wordpress.com. Okay, let's start off then with the good, the bad, all the ugly, change to usual. Go through some of the films that we've been watching this week, uh, where we've been watching them, and what we made of them. So, Jerry, if you'd like to start. Okay. Um, unfortunately, this week, the only bad slash ugly film that I watched, uh, without wanting to give too much away as to my opinion later on, was Dark Shadows. So I'm going to have to come up with some good films, I'm afraid, this week. Uh, at the risk of re reducing my credibility thus far on the podcast, I'm going to have to admit that up until the other day, I had never seen Jaws before. Ooh. Yeah. It was one of those films that whenever it was on, I always missed the first 10 minutes, and I kind of knew what happened in it anyway because everyone always talks about it. So mm. it's one of those that I never really bothered to buy on DVD or anything. Finally watched it anyway. Uh, absolutely brilliant film. So anybody who, like me, I don't think I need to go into any more detail on this, but anybody who, like me, who's not watched it, go and watch it. It's bloody brilliant. Yeah. Um, think... Sorry, Jerry. On. No, I was just going to say, it's my Rocky, that is, actually. Uh, yeah, it's. I, I, I know 
I, I think everyone should have seen Jaws by now. I didn't realise you hadn't, but I'm glad you have now. There's a apparently there's a brand new restored Blu-ray coming out in the summer, which I'm I'm already uh, waiting to buy. I can't wait to get that. Yeah, um, I think some of the camera shots on it were. I was I wasn't expecting the camera work to be quite as as great as it was. Do you know what I mean? I was expecting it to just be a sort of standard uh, enjoyable watch, but nothing really too brilliant from a visual perspective. But it really was excellent. So. Um, it was just great all round. I don't really need to go into any more detail on that. I think most people will, will have seen it and don't need me to review it. A new film that I did see this week, however, was 21 Jump Street, which I thought was really, really good. Not as good as everyone's been telling me. Not being, uh, you know, the funniest film I've seen in years, but I was not expecting it to be as funny as it was. It really had a lot of laugh-out-loud moments. There was a good dynamic going on between Jonah Hill and um, Channing Tatum, who was actually... Surprisingly good. I've never given him any credit before, so uh, he shocked me in that film. He absolutely he was he was a revelation considering where he's come from. It, yeah, again, it wasn't a Peter yeah. Sellers esque performance or any, yeah, by any stretch of the imagination, but he was very very funny, and he was probably funnier than Jonah Hill. For a lot yeah, of that film, I think I he, he played it. He was really good at sort of not quite deadpan, but that sort of playing it straight to get to get laughs from. From what he was saying, he was really, really good at that. And I thought he was better than Jonah Hill, as you say, which was just a complete surprise because I assumed that he was just terrible. And, and part of the reason why I wasn't interested in this film when it was announced and first came out was because he was in it. So I thought, well, that's going to be <laughs> even third of a film because it's got him in. So um, apologies to Ch- Channing Tatum and everyone involved in 21 Jump Street for, for writing that off. Um, it was just really good. I mean, I haven't seen the original series that it's based on, so I, I couldn't tell you whether it's... I don't even know if it got shown over here, to be honest. I I get the impression it just never appeared in the UK, so I think you're not alone. (laughs) No, I mean, I don't have a clue about it, but apparently it's quite a good homage and there's there's good references. There's a couple of cameos in it, which I think fans of the original series will appreciate. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was just, it was funny, and I liked, especially liked the bit, they went back to school without wanting to to give too much away. They, They end up going back to school as undercover cops, and it was the the difference in what constitutes cool in schools these days compared to what they were experienced as as cool was really funny to me because it's something that I've had an experience of where I see how is that cool. Mm. That wasn't cool when I was at school. So um, it was really well done. So uh, I just really enjoyed it. It was probably not the funniest film I've ever seen, not the best comedy film ever, but certainly the best comedy film that's been released this year that I've seen anyway. Uh, how about yourself then, James? What have you been watching this week? Um, well, I have, I've seen 10 films this week. Absolutely ridiculous. Uh, so I've narrowed it down to ones that I hadn't seen before and that I think people can still get quite, uh, go and see quite easily. So the first one I saw was, um, Jeff Who Lives at Home, uh, which we mentioned in our pod last week, uh, in terms of films that we're looking forward to. It stars Jason Siegel, Ed Helms and Susan Sarandon. Written and directed by the Duplass brothers, who did Cyrus quite recently, which was another Jonah Hill, uh, John C. Riley, and Marissa Tomei, I think it was. Interesting film. I really like this. Uh, at the start of the film, you see uh, Jason Siegel uh, playing Jeff. He's a 30-year-old stoner slacker, still living in his mother's basement, basically. And I did think, oh, yeah, we've seen this character done a million times. But it started off with him talking into a tape recorder about the uh, film Signs. 
and describing how it's central philosophy that everything is connected and everything happens for a reason is also his philosophy as well. And so that really underpinned the film about everything being interconnected. Given a simple task by his mother, played by Susan Sarandon, to go and get some wood glue, and his quest soon spirals out of control as he runs into his brother, who he doesn't get on with, played by Ed Helms. And Ed Helms thinks that his wife, who's played by Judy Greer, who is brilliant in this as well, is having an affair. Romantic subplot featuring Susan Sarandon as well, which is quite sweet. And, you know, I have to say, I, I think Susan Sarandon has still got it, as far as I'm concerned. And this, she's this week's woman that I'm going to slightly creepily cyberstalk via the medium of podcast. I'm going to give Aubrey Plaza a week off this week. Uh, and Kobe Smolders has completely shunned me, so she, she's old news. I laughed out loud three or four times. Um, but it was also quite emotional. Uh, and it had a, one thing really struck me. It had a really realistic argument between a married couple, which I don't think you see portrayed very well on screen. That was Ed Helms and you. Really, really good drama as well. The everything is connected thing does take a bit of buying into. And in some places, it feels a little bit like the film, uh, the filmmakers are cheating by using this to explain away some creepy plot points, going, oh, look, everything is coincidence and, you know, nothing is coincidence. Everything's the way it's meant to be, that kind of thing. But the performances at the heart were so charming, I could completely forgive it. So it's in cinemas now, although apparently it's not playing anywhere near Jerry, which is quite unfortunate. Um, no, I'm very, very disappointed about this fact. I'd just like to publish this. If anybody is listening from the cinemas of the Northwest, you are a disgrace. I need to see that <laughs> film and you are not allowing me to. It's quite, yeah, I imagine it will be, a, in a month's time, it will kind of move into the independent um, kind of artsy cinemas, because it is that type of film. It, it crosses the mainstream and the artistic divide quite well. So you will get a chance, I'm sure. At the, um, at, is it the showroom? I'm sure it will play there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know when I'm next going to be back to the showroom. I might have to uh, go over to Manchester. I think it's in the Odeon in Manchester. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure the corner will have it as well. So uh, I'll have to find a way to see it because I was really excited about it. I'm glad you, you enjoyed it. Have you, have you seen Lars and the Real Girl? No, I haven't, no. Because uh, I was going to ask you, because it looked like it was going to be that kind of film. But um, I think Ed Helms as well, I'm sure he, he he's probably proved this to you in this one. He's a much better actor than people give him credit for. Yes. I think he, he's he's shoehorned in as a comedy actor. But I mean, in The Office, he's he's funny, but his, his character has a lot more depth to it. And he's just really, really good at being, I don't know, yeah. very human in his characters. So I, I'll, I'll be interested to see if he does that in this one. Yeah, he, he actually did remind me a lot of his character Andy from The Office in terms of he, he had funny, he had pathos, um, he could get quite angry and he was a bit of a dick at times as well. And it was all of that really, really well done. And it's, yeah, if people only know him from The Hangover, then that's a shame because he's a much more talented actor than that. Not that I hate The Hangover, I think The Hangover's fine, but he's far more three-dimensional than in there. I think a lot of people write him off as being the dentist from The Hangover, and he's he's a much better actor. He's he's, he's funny, but he's got a lot more than comedy to his game. I think he's gonna he's gonna get some bigger roles as time goes on as well. He's steadily building a bit of a, a career for himself on on the big screen. So yeah, and um, don't go and see that with um, friends that might you'd be embarrassed maybe having a, a slightly uh, a tear in your eye at the end. That's all I'll say. It was um it moved me <laughs> at the end. It really did. I, I nearly nearly cried. But uh, it was close. The start leaking. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, second film I'm going to talk about. Uh, I saw. I finally saw Hesher this week. Another film actually, where the it's about a protagonist, um, but he's actually an agent of change for all the peripheral characters around him. 
Uh, and it also had the same indie slacker vibe as Jeffrey lives at home. However, Hesher, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, is about as far away from Jason Siegel's Jeff as can be. They've only got their pot-smoking habit uh, in common, to be honest. Hesher is a much nastier, grittier film, but still funny, uh, especially the performance from Gordon-Levitt. Uh, he completely owns this film, and his portrayal of some kind of heavy metal poppins is right at the heart of this film. Rain Wilson and Natalie Portman, also decent support, but my problem with Hesher is that when uh, Gordon-Levitt's not on screen, the film feels a bit flat at times, and it's it kind of slips into that shoegazing indie filmmaking sensibility where nothing much happens. People stand around looking intensely into the distance, saying lines that could only ever have been written. You, you'd never really hear them spoken. When that's done well, I like it, but it has to be done really well. However, I wouldn't say Hesher is a failure. It's more of a curiosity, and it is worth watching for Gordon Levitt, in my opinion. That is uh, available on DVD at the moment. And the last film I want to talk about is Being Elmo. Uh, it's a documentary that is currently doing the rounds in certain kind of arts and cinemas, and it's streaming on US Netflix as well, actually. It's a biopic of Kevin Shields, who is the man behind the puppet that so many children across the globe love, Elmo. Uh, really heartwarming documentary, I thought. Uh, Kevin Shields is, uh, he grew up in a really deprived area of the US and worked and worked until he achieved his dream of working with Jim Henson. And really, it's about as perfect an example of the American dream as you could find. He's clearly a nice bloke and he's very talented but there isn't anything in this documentary that i haven't seen on the e-channel the biography channel in terms of exciting documentary technique at all the only thing that kept me watching was the fact that the subject was likable and there is some good archive and behind the scenes footage of jim henson and frank oz and people like that but it had no tension and conflict uh we knew how it ended uh he's you know massively rich and travels the world uh playing around with puppets i didn't discover any kind of new truth or anything like that but i did enjoy it for being a nice portrait of a nice bloke so it's about 80 minutes long it's worth the watch especially if you've got a bit of a love for uh jim henson yeah uh, i i've been a bit unsure about this one i must say because it's it's been very talked up and particularly in the american mm. uh media um, and it's, I've seen it on Netflix US, mm. um, and I've, I've been tempted. But if you say it, uh, the comparison to an e-channel sort of thing, that, that is quite a negative. Well, yeah, more damning, damning by faint praise, shall we say? Yes, yeah. It, as it's narrated by Wolfie Goldberg, it does, just feels like one of those Hollywood true story documentaries. The fact is, I liked the story, um, but as a document, I'm, I'm struggling to see why this is in cinemas. It, it doesn't feel like a theatrical release. It doesn't do anything uh, different with the documentary genre. Uh, and it, it's just a nice portrayal of someone. It just feels like, um, at times, it just feels like a hello spread put onto the screen, if you see what I mean. Um, but, like I say, if you do get some interviews with Jim Henson, Frank Oz, um, some nice archive footage. So that, there is something of interest there, but it, it's not it's not unmissable. Uh, and if, if, to be honest, I could have switched it off if I didn't like the guy it was about so much. Well, the three films I've managed to watch this week, two I'd never seen before, one I had, one I'm only going to give a mention to because previously we've been discussing sort of Transformers versus sort of Independence Day and why they can't do big summer blockbuster movies like they used to be able to. It's a, it's a theme that I watched. I watched Con Air on BBC Three last oh. night 
And, and see, now they can't do action films like that like they used to. That's a brilliant film in its genre. It's not going to win any Oscars or any awards, but I mean, as a pure action film, and they can't do it anymore. It's just I'm a big, big fan of Con. I love Con Air. I love Nick Cage. Uh, I wonder what's happened to John Cusack. Why can't he do anything decent anymore? No, Con Con Air is one of those films that if I see it on television, it's lucky I didn't see it on television. In terms of in terms of action in terms of action films that I like, it's like like the original Free Die Hard. Yeah. And why can't I do an action film like that anymore? Anyway, on to the two films I've not seen before, but I've seen this week. Bit of a theme of them, a reoccurring theme. They're both found footage films. So if you know what I mean, something kind of like Cloverfield or Paranormal Activity or The Blair Witch Project, that kind of thing. The one bad one I watched was Apollo 18. <laughs> now, I'd, I saw this trailer for this in the cinema a while ago and I thought, it looks quite good. It looks quite interesting. Bit of a, you know, quite an interesting idea. Um, kind of an idea I thought you might have liked, James, as you've been pushing the idea of Iron Sky quite recently. Yeah, it, was there, is there any Nazis in this? Not Nazis, but it's basically... Uh-huh. <laughs> A moon, a moon, a moon mission. A moon mission. It's not a direct sequel to Apollo 13, starring Tom Hanks. If it is, I've missed the four in between. Obvious joke there, obviously. Uh, but what do you expect from me? But anyway, they go to the moon. Mysterious things start happening. They're not quite sure what it is. They find a uh, not crash landed, but a Soviet ship, Soviet spacecraft, not crashed. Um, the cosmonauts they find eventually. Uh, but yes, it's, it's just. The way sort of a film like that works is if it builds suspense, because it's obviously meant to be a horror film, a scary kind of film. It builds suspense, it builds tension. There's a few little jumps. You also find out a bit about what's going on as well, about why, you know, what it is that's scaring them or attacking them and why it's doing it. It just doesn't do that. It doesn't build any uh, tension, it doesn't build any suspense. It ends up just being quite boring. And you don't tend to... That's a shame. It's a really good idea. It just doesn't work. And other why f- doesn't it work? What is it? Is it the plot? Is it the, the filmmaking, the it's, cinematography? What? It's not really the plot or the cinematography or anything like that. It just, it's, well, I suppose it is the plot. It's, it's not the idea. It's the plot. It just doesn't. It doesn't work. It just doesn't build tension and suspense. Say, whereas I don't know if either of you like Paranormal Activity, but it does make you jump. It does make you mm. a bit scared. It does make you. Well, basically, what we'd done after we saw Paranormal Activity at the cinema was go home, look at a load of ghost videos, and not sleep for six hours. <laughs> and, and it wasn't the kind of, it wasn't that kind of, it didn't work like that. Um, but best move Did on. Did it make you jump at all? Once. Once, yeah. And that's probably because I stopped paying attention and then something happened. <laughs> uh, but the other film in this kind of genre that I watched, which was absolutely fantastic, was The Troll Hunter. Oh, I'm excited to see this. I've got it on my Netflix queue. I, yeah. I recommend it wholeheartedly. It's, it's, it's on US Netflix. Yes, it's on US it's, Netflix. Yeah, it's, I think that's where I saw it as well, US Netflix. It's a Norwegian film, so if you don't like to read while watching films, then this isn't for you. <laughs> um, but trust me, go for it. It's, it tells the story of a group of students who are, I think uh, they are investigating hunting or something, illegal hunting. They end up getting wind of somebody who hunts trolls, and they end up following him round. He, uh, it's a sort of grizzled old hunter who hunts trolls for the Norwegian government. Um, it sounds stupid, but it is fantastic. I really recommend watching it. It makes you jump. There's a few funny moments in there. The characters are likable, and you want them to, you know, you, you want to follow the character's story from start to end. 
that you even wanted to be a sequel to follow it up, even though sequels to these kind of films are usually terrible. Um, but yes, The Troll Hunter, available on US, Netflix, and probably other places too. Uh, I think it's out on DVD as well. Uh, definitely worth a watch. Excellent. Yeah, it sounds interesting. It's pretty original for a, for a horror slash fantasy kind of film. It's a pretty original concept as well. You don't really have many trolls. And for, and for, a, for a Norwegian film now, I don't want to be offensive to to our Norwegian friends, but I wouldn't imagine that Norwegian cinema is booming and they invest a lot of money into the films. But the effect, the trolls don't look rubbish, put it that way. They don't look like really tacky and rubbish effects. They look really good and impressive. That's good, actually, because what, what you quite often find on these fan footage films is um, generally that the, if there is a monster or a bad guy in it, it looks terrible. I, there are so many fan footage films about at the moment. It's quite interesting because there's also a, uh, a Chernobyl Diaries coming out mm. soon, which looks a little bit offensive to the thousands of people who've caught cancer from it. But, I mean... but, um, but that's another fact. And it seems to me that um, fan footage is a way that a lot of filmmakers can get away with really terrible shaky camera work they go do you know what? if we make it fine footage it doesn't have to look good i think and i think I'm slightly worried <laughs> that we're going down that route well, i think we had that so it sort of kicked on a bit when the blair witch project came out that was yeah. kind of a bit revolutionary we've not seen it before especially in a film kind of, of that scale and then it died off a bit and then paranormal activity cut and cloverfield kind of although it's higher budget kind of brought that found footage thing back and now it yeah, seems to be a bit definitely... in vogue again but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it works. Cloverfield, I yep. thought, was really good. Troll Hunter, excellent. Paranormal Activity, not an excellent film, but it definitely done what it was meant to. It did make you jump and scare you a bit. Some of them are absolutely abysmal, like Apollo eighteen. Yeah, yeah. I it's it can be just lazy shorthand filmmaking, but yeah. if the idea is good, I'll definitely watch one. And I'm I'm looking forward to seeing Troll Hunter now. And. We'll we best wrap up part one now. In part two, we'll be back with our triple build feature, where this week's topic is our favourite movie soundtracks. Welcome back into part two of episode four of Fail Critic Podcast. If, you've, uh, if you're a regular listener, you'll know this bit is called Triple Bill, where we pick our favourite three films within a certain topic. This week's topic is our favourite soundtracks of all time. So, James, would you like to kick off with your favourite three movie soundtracks? Yeah, definitely. Well, I couldn't decide, actually, between my favourite scores and my favourite soundtracks, in inverted commas, because that doesn't work very well on a podcast. You can't see me doing that. Um, but I, I decided to go for a mixture. Uh, so these are basically the three soundtracks that I listen to on my phone almost every week. So uh, three great films. First one I'm going to talk about is Velvet Goldmine from 1998, uh, directed by Todd Haynes. It's basically uh, based on a, an alternative David Bowie character played by Jonathan Rhys-Myers called Brian Slade, who fakes his death. And uh, an investigative journalist, um, well, he's not that investigative, but played by Christian Bale, looks for him. It's also got Ewan McGregor, Tony Collette and Eddie Izzard in it. Really, really of its time. Um, and it sums up the 70s beautifully the soundtrack itself which is the reason i'm here talking about it mixes tracks from glam rock legends such as roxy music and t-rex uh there's also new tracks from pulp and shudder to think and a super group formed for the purpose of the film uh, uh with members of radiohead roxy music and sonic youth who do 
some new tracks and some Roxy Music covers as well. It's a brilliant soundtrack, and it it is the best uh, I've ever I've best soundtrack I've ever seen come close to getting the whole spirit of glam rock. Not just saying here's some glam rock tracks, but there's some new tracks which sound like they're from that era as well. I absolutely love Velvet Goldmine, but it, it I think it's quite underrated, and I don't think many people have seen it to be honest. No, I'm I'm one of those many people. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm definitely in that camp. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, if it, it, it's a film four thing, film four show it now and again. I absolutely love it. Also, it was the film I saw on the first date with my wife, uh, my now wife back in 1990. So I've, I've possibly oh. also got a bit of a, uh, an emotional attachment to that film as well, but I do think it's an excellent film. Uh, my second film is Amelie from 2001. Uh, most people hopefully will have seen Amelie. It's the story of a sheltered young Parisian lady meddles in the lives of people she knows and tries to find love herself. It's one of those rare 10 out of 10 films for me, Amelie. Uh, and part of the reason for that is the soundtrack score by the French instrumentalist Jan Tiersen. Um, the music perfectly fits the film. It sounds French, uh, but it sounds uplifting and joyful. And it's, it feels like Amelie is walking around with that music playing in her head. Um, the music itself has been extensively used on TV in recent years, and it's kind of cheapened it slightly. Uh, it, quite interesting, the director, Junet, you know, discovered Jan Tiersen when he listened to a CD of his music in the car when he was trying to work out who he was going to have score his film. So he used some of the tracks from that CD, uh, but also Jan Tiersen producing brand new music for the Amelie soundtrack. It's uh, beautiful and unequivocally French, like Amelie herself, both the film and the character. Uh, I'm going to have to throw in a bit of trivia here. Sure. Anybody who's into Newfound Glory, mm-hmm. the sort of pop-punk band who were around in the early noughties, late nineties. Yeah. Um, they did a, a an album of covers. Well, they did two albums of covers, actually, of like songs that were in films called From the Screen to Your Stereo and then From the Screen to Your Stereo 2. And they actually did an instrumental cover of uh, the opening oh. intro theme of Amelie. But it's like, obviously, it's with guitars and loud, loud. I would, I'd love, I'm going to, thank you for letting me know about that. I really want to hear that. Jan Tiersen himself now plays um, live as a band, uh, playing guitar mostly himself. So that's quite interesting that he's gone that way as well. Um, he's also done a lot of work with Neil Hannon of the Divine Comedy and there's a few of their, tr- few of their pieces that they worked on together in the film as well. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, and my number one, well, Last week in the speeches, I cheated a bit. In my opinion, I cheated by going, I'm going to have some Shakespeare in there because he is the king of all speeches. Well, I've gone for Amadeus uh, from 1984, directed by Miles Foreman. The soundtrack is by Mozart, who is the Shakespeare of music, in my opinion. So the film itself is the story of Mozart told a little bit with uh, tongue-in-cheek and with the half half-truths and half-lies everywhere, but it's told in flashback by his mentor and his great rival, Antonio Salieri. Um, but the soundtrack is amazing. Sir Neville Mariner's crisp and wonderful readings of Mozart, gorgeously performed by the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. This is some of my favourite music in the world that has ever been created, full stop. And the thing is, it's not just great music in isolation, um, but certain pieces on the soundtrack fit to such pivotal moments in the film. They're actually used within the film. Uh, So Mozart's Requiem, uh, which he's writing as he dies. Uh, The Serenade for Winds, where Salieri first meets Mozart, is used. Um, 
the opening bars of Don Giovanni, which strike fear and terror into Mozart and strike fear and terror into us watching the film. Uh, they're woven into Peter Schaeffer's screenplay from his, uh, from his own play. And like I say, they are pivotal plot points in themselves. In my opinion, it is the perfect soundtrack. I still think you're cheating, though. It's a Shakespeare-style cheat. <laughs> you, can, you can't have bloody Mozart. <laughs> you know, it's not a level playing field for the rest of us. Oh, no, I should have said oh, something. I'm just going to pluck out one of the greatest composers of all time, just stick him in there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there you go. Well, um, we'll move on to my list, because maybe I've got some people would consider a modern-day Mozart in there. <laughs> is it Will Smith? Is no. Is it the Men in Black? No. No. No, no it's the Mighty Ducks soundtrack. Uh, no Mighty Ducks this week. I wasn't even going to mention them this week because I couldn't figure out a shoehorn them in. <laughs> Two of the films I've picked, I've picked in other categories before. The first one is Shaun of the Dead. Um, my soundtracks have all varied between scores and musicals and everything. Well, I picked Shaun of the Dead in my Desert Island movies, uh, but now in my soundtrack list. No, you know, the soundtrack, just songs I like on it. I like pretty much all of the songs on there. There's a couple of songs from Ash, Meltdown and Orpheus, Panic by the Smiths, a couple of great Queen songs, Don't Stop Me Now, which is, you know, the main song everyone takes away from that film. Uh, White Lines by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Hip Hop Bebop by Van Parish. It's just a, it's just a good soundtrack, good collection of songs. Yeah, I think they all work within the film as well. Mo- yeah, of- most of them are in the film at a point where they, the kind of lyrics or what's happening is relevant to what's going on in the song, which is quite clever in itself. And it's a very Edgar Wright type thing, actually. It's almost quite meta, which I, I like. I personally love that kind of thing. So, no, no, you're right. Great collection. And it's also got Queen's You're My Best Friend, which is yeah. a really underrated Queen song as well. Um, and if you have it on DVD, you can go to the trivia track where it gives you some fun facts about each song. Beautiful. Uh, which is quite common. the film or just in general? Um, the trivia track on the thing is about the song, you know, just any fun facts about the song on a film or anything like that. The trivia track is quite a common thing that um, Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright tend to do. There's one on Hot Fuzz and it's on the um, Space box set as well, um, which is always something extra if you're watching it again. Next film, a musical score. South Park, Bigger, Longer and Uncut. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that Steve's got 10 DVDs at home and that's it. <laughs> yeah. One shelf, like, lodged on a couple of bricks. Yeah. <laughs> with, like, South Park and Mighty Duck films on it. But, as a musical, we've been, we went for it when I picked this film as my favourite of child protagonists. It's, and then it's written, the songs are written, by people who aren't musicians and then probably not really musically talented. Trey Parker wrote most of them with a bit of help from Matt Stone. Some of them are funny. Some of them are just a quiet mountain town that opens this film. It's fantastic. La Resistance Medley, where they merge all the songs together. Yeah, I can't argue with you there, Steve. I think it's a great soundtrack. And also, I think... They, they, they've become quite accomplished now. I mean, they've won like all sorts of Tony Awards for their Broadway show as well, haven't they? So, they have uh, the, um, the Book of Mormon, isn't it? Yeah. And they, yeah. their first film actually was, uh, Cannibals a Musical. So, no, they're, they know their way around a tune, definitely. And Team America has some great songs in it as well. Yes. Yes, it does. 
Oh yeah, don't 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 put your choice down. I think <laughs> they've got quite a lot of musical credentials. Well, really. I mean, uh, pretty, yeah. Blame Canada's probably my favourite from the whole the whole movie. Yeah, uh, Mozart would have been proud to be honest. But that so wasn't that. my modern day Mozart comparison. <laughs> the final film in this trilogy of mine, I went for one of the Star Wars films. Now, you could argue that with John Williams composing the music for him, you could go for any of the Star Wars films. Even the music on the worst of the six, The Phantom Menace, was fantastic. Uh, Jewel of Fates was one of the songs he composed for that, which was, which was brilliant. But mm-hmm. I've gone for episode four, A New Hope. Purely over the rest because of the, the band in the cantina. Just edges it for, <laughs> just edges it over the rest. All, all, the, all of the Star Wars films, the music is fantastic, and I don't think you can argue with that. They've got the iconic tunes for, you know, the Imperial March, for Darth Vader, for the beginning, for the end, but just edging it over the rest of them for me is the Cantina Band. It is one of the most iconic scores of all time, uh, and now I'm going to have the Cantina Band song in my head for the rest of the day, so thanks. <laughs> well, yeah. as, as it's in your head, go and sing it for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Alright, fine. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's just, I think without that as well, I mean, he went on and did all sorts of amazing scores after that as well, so yeah. it, it kind of took his career to the next level. I think, had he done Jaws before that as well? Yes, or was he Jaws had, after yeah. Star Wars? No, he did Jaws, oh, hang on. No, Jaws, do you know what, I think Jaws is 79, isn't it? I, I can't remember. I'm prepared now. Jaws was 75, so it's before Star Wars. Oh, really? God. But, um, God. But I think didn't um didn't he come up with the duh, duh, for Jaws yeah. and and Spielberg at first thought he was just taking the mic. Yeah, because Spielberg wanted some like soft piano song or something, didn't he? He wanted yeah. something nice and subtle. And Williams was like, "No, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to do three <laughs> notes and speed it you up know. a bit. What about yeah. it?" And he he did the uh the few notes in Close Encounters of the Third Kind as well. Do, 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 do. Yeah, that yeah it, no John Williams is brilliant. Oh, I love him. That that was my uh, modern day Mozart comparison. No, no, I like it. Not not as crass as I thought it was going to be. No, I mean, come on, I have, <laughs> I have picked some silly films in there, but I didn't go quite as crass the whole way. But yeah, he, I think he's got you know, Jaws, Star Wars, Close Encounters, Superman, all the Indiana Jones in there. And yeah. I think you think Star Wars is probably his best and my favourite out of the lot. Just like I said, so many iconic moments. Good choice. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty hard to, to come up with a single score of his that stands out with the others, but Star Wars is just... I think that film wouldn't have been what it was without that soundtrack. I think that's that's pretty yeah. safe to say. So, uh, he's a great choice. I've got a similar sort of uh, guy in terms of stature in, in cinema for, for doing soundtracks as one of my choices. He, he may as well go up first. Mine not in any particular order. Um, like you guys, I was sort of trying to strike a balance between scores and sort of collected soundtracks. And I also decided to go for one, which I felt really added to the film more than anything. Uh, so I chose Psycho. Oh, the, yeah. I think that the sound for Psycho was made up such a huge part of making that film so good. Um, it, the score was by a guy called Bernard Herman, who also did the score for Citizen Kane, uh, Cape Fear, Taxi Driver, uh, he did Vertigo and North, North, North by Northwest. He did all sorts of films. I think he, he did the Twilight Zone score as well. He, he, I mean, he did all sorts of stuff. 
Um, but the score was for the psycho. It's just brilliant. I mean, the the tension in that film owes so much to to the score and the way that the, those strings build up and the, the sort of shrieking terror of the the sound of the sound coming coming out completely mirrors the the terror that Hitchcock's trying to like convey. So I think Hitchcock himself said that a third of it, third of Psycho's success and the effect that Psycho had anyway was was because of the music. So um, you know. It's just one of those those things that's really recognisable, and that the shower scene, if you don't have that score, is is nowhere near as powerful. So I, I chose it based on on what it adds to the film, really, as much as anything else. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think excellent choice, and I watched Psycho again quite recently, and you, I I'd forgotten how how often the music is playing in the film actually. Yeah, it is always kind of just round the corner and bubbling away underneath. And you're you're absolutely right. It does set up the atmosphere of that film. Uh, so no cracking choice. And I'm really glad to see um, Herman on on the list. Someone chose someone else chose him because he does deserve to be right up there. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's always there. It's like practically like an extra character. Do you know what I mean? It's just mm. it's always lurking. Speaking of extra characters, one film that. Basically, the soundtrack was an extra character and made it so so good and so effective. Donnie Darko is my second choice. That's mm-hmm. my compilation sort of soundtrack because basically, to get the 80s atmosphere, you just put that soundtrack on. It's like the most 80s soundtrack <laughs> possibly go. And it, 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 But it's not just any old 80s. It's the stuff that really works with the film and with the character of Donnie as well. And the music in itself, the way it's played and the way it's used... And it's that sort of iconic scene where he's riding his bike down the down the hill and stuff to the Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunny Men. And there's just some really great tracks on there. I mean, you've got Tears for Fears, uh, you've got Joy Division, you've got The Church, uh, a bit of Duran Duran on there, Echo and the Bunny Men, like I said. And then you've got, um, they also managed to get a Christmas number one with uh, the Gary Jules cover of Mad World yeah. as well. <laughs> and the actual score of it, of the, of the film which was uh, written by Roland Orzabal. Um, oh, no, sorry. Mad World was written by Roland Orzabal. And the rest of the score was written by a guy called Michael Andrews, who really, that, that whole thing, all the all the background music, all the sort of weird stonerish mood that, that's created when there isn't proper music on, as it were, it's, it's just excellent. So um, I went for that one because not only has it got a good score, but the actual independent soundtrack of it is just, superb and there's so many good songs on it yeah for me i think that uh, i'm probably being quite uh blasphemous here that is a case for me where the soundtrack is better than the film i i i've, I've only seen donnie darko once but it i it i wasn't kind of overly impressed with it i'm gonna have to watch it again because it's in the imdb top 250 so i'm gonna sit down and watch it again with a new view but loads of people hyped it up massively to me and I didn't come away that impressed I, with I think it. I, I think it the, sounded amazing. I think the problem for me with watching Donnie Darko is I watched it when it first came out and I was a fair bit younger and, and a bit stupider and probably didn't understand what was going on. Whereas, <laughs> it, whereas if I watched it now um, I'd probably understand it a lot more um, and get it more. Um, although I might just go to people like I did with Primer and say if you want to watch a time travel film just watch Back to the Future. <laughs> <laughs> Right. It's one of those films. I think I was about 13 or 14 when I first saw it. It was like one of the first films that really made me think, "Geez, what's going on here?" And really sort of 
want to watch it again just to try and figure out and get it straight in my head. So it's again for me, it's, it's similar to you. I was younger; it has that kind of place. Also, to, to bring us full circle, the guy who did the score for that uh, did the score for Jeffy Lives at Home. Oh, there we go. Which I ha- I will have to say actually, I what the score was one of the things I wasn't that impressed with in Jeffy Lives at Home. It kind of oh, wow. it kept it kept interfering with the film for me. There was a bit of um Hans Zimmer esque wind chime type thing from True Romance. There was a bit of a rip-off of that at one point, and it felt a little bit like Movie of the Week at times. So that's quite interesting, because I did act, I wrote down, score, meh, and it kind of <laughs> interfered a few times. So how interesting. Anyway, we've yeah, best... It's bridesmaids too, so uh, he's not exactly done a great deal of work that required a lot of soundtracking. Yeah. <laughs> one that did require a lot of soundtracking is my final choice, which is probably my main one. And it's one of those that really is a it's got an iconic status but i think it's it's one of the few ones that's classical but i could probably listen to it on its own whereas i think if i had something like i don't know the any old morricone soundtracks i'm not sure i would listen to them on, the, on their own independent of the film i have chosen gladiator because the actual original score for that is just brilliant and some of the moments in that film which where it's just a lovely visual and the mu- the score is, and the music is just fantastic. So, um, Gladiator, completely original score written by Hans Zimmer yeah, and Hans. Lisa Gerrard as well. Uh, and some of the, uh, some of the songs I think she sings on. Um, and it was performed by the Lindhurst Orchestra conducted by Gavin Greenaway. Won a uh, Golden Globe for original score, nominated for an Oscar, nominated for a BAFTA. Uh, I think it was pretty well received commercially. Um, it, it wasn't like, you know, a massive seller, but for a film soundtrack, it, it sold pretty, pretty damn well. I think that and Titanic really were, were the biggest sellers, but, um, it was just, it's just a fantastic soundtrack and I really, really enjoy listening to it and watching the film, particularly the, the famous scene where, where Maximus is just walking through the cornfields with his, mm. his hands running through the corn with that soundtrack. And it's just a really iconic theme. And uh, Hans Zimmer obviously done all sorts of brilliant things. And he did worked on The Lion King, didn't he? did The Dark Knight, yeah. did Inception. Um, I mean, he's done countless things. I'm just trying to think. And the aforementioned True Romance, that uh, the, the You're So Cool theme uh, in True Romance, yep. which really kind of, pulls that film together as well. Uh, Gladiator, first film I ever bought on DVD. There you go. Little little true fact for you there, guys. <laughs> well, a long time since I've actually seen Gladiator as well. As much yeah, as a no, fantastic no. film, I haven't watched it for so long. Well worth getting the Blu-ray off. It's a, it's a, a great film to watch over and over again. Anyway, we best was, bring part oh, two to a close now. Uh, James, just before we finish up, would you like to tell the listeners what the topic is for next week's Triple Bill. Yes, next week's film, we are going back to the 70s. Uh, we will be discussing our three favourite films from the decade where cinema kind of really grew up and grew a pair of balls with 70s. Love it. So, yeah, three favourite films of the 70s next week. Which clearly means I'm going to have to look outside of my limited selection on the show. You're going to have to watch some, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they did recovered footage from no. the 70s. <laughs> no. I can have Star Wars. <laughs> you can. Um, anyway, that's it for part two. In part three, we're going to be back with our new release review, which is Dark Shadow starring Johnny Depp.
For this week's new release, we review Dark Shadows, directed by Tim Burton and starring shock horror of all people, Johnny Depp, as Barnabas Collins, the wealthy playboy who breaks the heart of a witch, is turned into a vampire, buried in a coffin in the woods, and is awoken in 1972. Also starring Michelle Pfeiffer, Eva Green, and shock horror, Hannah Bonham Carter. <laughs> Just to give you a bit of a warning, this part of the podcast probably will contain some spoilers. So if you're planning on watching the film yourself, you may not want to listen on. Although, from what I've heard, as I've not seen the film myself, it might not be worth watching at all. No, don't go and watch it. That's my that's my spoiler. Don't spoil your your own <laughs> fun by going and watching this film. That's the, the biggest spoiler of all. Would be watching this film. No, I think. I think James hates it more than me, so I let him start well, in on it. I'll, I'll, I'll just chime in quickly. From my thoughts of not seeing the film, but seeing the trailer a lot recently, the soundtrack, speaking of soundtracks, the soundtrack sounded quite good. There was a couple of funny moments in the trailer, um, but it didn't look like my kind of film, but then a lot of Tim Burton, Johnny Depp films aren't my kind of film. That's all I've got to say on it, as I haven't seen it, but over to people who actually have. Yeah, um, the trade. I I thought the trailer wasn't too bad. Okay, um, what we're dealing with here, it's it's clearly the story of an actor who has been cursed for all eternity to make a series of increasingly poor films with a director who lost touch years ago. <laughs> oh, I'm so angry about this film. Um, I, I lowered my expectations before going into this film, uh, and it still spectacularly failed to meet those expectations. Problem is. The script for a start, okay, and this worries me because it's written by Seth Graham Smith, who wrote the novel and the screenplay for Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. So that worries me now uh, because the script for this, it wasn't funny enough for a start. Um, And quite often I was actually longing for some uh, stereotypical generic fish out of water jokes. There weren't actually, considering he's a vampire from 200 years ago, there wasn't that much, oh, look, this is a bit different. Oh, look, yeah, there wasn't even that much of that. There were very few jokes. Most of the jokes came from the fact that Johnny Depp talks in uh, a style which no one talks in anymore. Um, and some of that is really quite beautifully delivered by Johnny Depp. However, most of the jokes either don't work or they're not even there in the first place the plot i'll go i'll go on to the plot in a minute um but the plot that is kind of so the jokes holds. as well yeah the jokes they weren't really jokes i don't think they were, a lot of the comedy was was slapstick mm. which really i thought said a lot about what they were what audience they were aiming for i think it was definitely aimed at like 12 year old girls really wasn't it i mean it was the, the supposed funny bits i'm making the inverted commas here that you can't see with, they were sort of slapstick things, like someone falling over or, you know, having something thrown at them. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a really well thought out, funny film. I think the problem with it was it didn't really know what it was trying to be. I mean, it was serious when it started, but like it took itself really seriously. And then at times it was like it was trying to be a satire, and then it was trying to be a bit funny, and it was trying to be a bit of a drama, and then it was back to being really serious, and then it was, uh, it was just. It was a mess, really. It was a confusing mess. A mess is exactly what I've got written down here. In fact, uh, quote, Act 3 is an absolute mess. Um, But yeah, 
it really annoyed me, actually. Like I say, tonally, it was all over the place. Uh, it wanted to be dark and scary one minute. Then it wanted to be funny. There was a few moments of surrealism going on there. Um, Johnny, uh, it, it annoyed me because there is a talented cast there and they're doing the best that they can with the material they've been given. I, let's be honest. Johnny Depp is very good. Okay, Johnny Depp does give... He doesn't phone it in. He gives, he gives a very Johnny Depp performance let's be honest but he's very good at that michelle pfeiffer is good in the few moments she gets to show any kind of oh, emotion. oh i thought she was really bad oh, really she... oh, oh we've got our first disagreement here excellent uh, i i maybe maybe it's just because i've got a thing for older women this week um or something I, I need to check my hormones in at the door when i go and see a film um i i thought I felt that most of the things that were wrong with Pfeiffer's performance came from the source material, but obviously, Jerry, you disagree slightly. Or more I, well, I think the source, <laughs> the source material wasn't great. I mean, the, the script that she was getting wasn't great, but I think she, she, some of the scenes she was remarkably wooden for an actor of that experience and caliber. I was, I was just, I was taken aback by how wooden and amateurish she, she sounded at times. But the scripting was was pretty piss poor, to be honest. So. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and to be Great. fair, I thought Eva Green did very well, with, again, with what she had. At least she vamped it up and she was, you know, she was a bit interesting on screen. Her her character, again, was an absolute mess. But, okay, you know, I'm going on to my major problems with the plot here. Okay, Angelique the Witch, okay, so powerful, yet she's working as a servant at the beginning and decides to destroy an entire family just because a bloke didn't say he loves her. You've got to look at this slight kind of misogynistic aspects there. Okay, oh, Johnny Depp is so good-looking, he can turn a woman that crazy with love. Um, but she hung around in this fishing village for over 200 years. Towards the end of the film, she's got, she's got almost kind of Sauron-style powers going on. And you think, yeah. she, could, she, could run, she could rule the world, and she's hung around in this fishing village for 200 years, running Still a moderately moderate successful... Empire, yeah, yeah uh, and that, that, to me, made absolutely no sense. Um, I feel really sorry for Chloe Grace Moretz, who plays Carolyn, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's daughter, because I think she is a young actress with a lot of promise. She was very good in Hugo. Uh, she was also very good in um, as Hit Girl in Kick-Ass. So I, I thought, okay. and she does the kind of stroppy teenager thing. And then, okay, spoiler alert here. All of a sudden in Act 3, she kind of goes, oh yeah, by the way, I'm a werewolf. And you're like, where has that come from? And why <laughs> just me and i'll be honest, I, yeah. uh, that was and the, the way she cinema. i nearly walked that, out yeah that line the way she she had to say that line i think you could even tell that she was just like i'm really sorry audience for <laughs> having to speak this line of really shoddy scripting yeah she even like embarrassed to be to be saying what she was given it was uh the scripting on that particularly that was a particular highlight oh, of how horrible bad I think- it was I think I actually sighed in the cinema out loud, and I apologise to everyone in Screen Out, Odie and Lester. I just went, oh, for fuck's sake. Uh, and it, it really felt... I was so angry. Um, and that bit of um, dialogue is symptomatic of loads of the problems here, because there were, loads of it was just, OK, well, we need to write some exposition. I hate films that use a voiceover. The voiceover at the beginning, sometimes a voiceover can work, but it doesn't work very often and um it was saying oh look barnaby uh, collins is this great person well, don't tell me that show me that he's this great person because all i've seen is him kissing a servant and then telling her that he doesn't love her yeah that uh, what, what why is he so good why is he so moral and you know a man for the times that 
show me that. Don't tell me that he is and expect me to just believe it. Yeah, that was a very big jump. And the other characters made a bit, a bit of that as well further on into the film. Yeah, oh yeah. The, what was Johnny Lee Miller doing in this film? Johnny Lee Miller was there one minute <laughs> and then he was gone. He just packed off because he's lot, of, so bored. Of, the, 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 without wanting to give too much away, the opening of the film after the sort of prologue, you know, with Johnny Depp, is a girl travelling to become their living mate, and that's kind of how the story all kicks off. Mm. Um, and she was in it at the start, she seemed a bit interesting, you know, she looked a bit conflicted, she seemed mm. to make her own identity for herself, you know, change her name and things like that. Um, and she got there, and then she was used to introduce the family and the characters, and then she just disappeared, and she was meant to be hired to look after this kid, she never looked after the kid once. Yeah, oh, exactly. Lazy, lazy plotting. Um, and th- this lazy plotting... And, do you know, if, if it's a f- gothic fantasy, you've got to... You know, even if the rules are different from our world, you've still got to have rules and stick to them, OK? And that's why vampire films, the ones that work are the ones that stick to vampire lore and things like that, OK? Oh, that was the other thing that really annoyed me, actually. We, we're just meant to accept that Barnaby Collins, this great man, has killed over 20 people by about halfway through the film with no regard whatsoever for what he's done. No guilt, no remorse. Um, and we're meant to well, go... He does apologise oh, to some of them before he says it. Yeah, he, uh, and then kills 20 of them. Yeah. I'm going to have to kill you all and just, just murder them, but... Yeah, yeah. And, and I just... and I, He's the guy I'm rooting for here at the moment. And it just... It, that again, that's uh, another example of how tonally it was completely wrong, and it didn't know whether it wanted to be a horror or, or camp comedy or a Peter K. Remember the seventies type. Look at this, look at this, isn't it funny? Type thing. Um, Helen the Bonham Carter again was in it, wasted. Um, uh, do you know what really annoyed me though? They, they dragged in Christopher Lee for no reason. Don't, don't just put Christopher Lee yeah. in your films to say, oh, look, we've got Christopher Lee. Let him do something. He basically did nothing in this film for about Which five minutes. And it was, it was purely to have Christopher Lee in your film. Well, I'm sorry, you shouldn't be doing that. But Same with Alice sure. Cooper. There was no reason for Alice Cooper to be in this film, to be honest. Again, absolutely wasted. But surely a man of Christopher Lee's standing shouldn't just be rocking up for a cameo in this kind of film. Oh yeah, I know, but... was cameo, but he got like four lines or something like that. I mean, it's yeah, just... I don't know what ended up on the cutting room floor or anything like that. Maybe, but again, it was just he turns up and says a few things, and he wasn't even an important character or anything like that. That so it, it just it, it's part symptomatic of the entire mess that this was. The other thing that really winds me up is this was this cost over a hundred million dollars to make. Who is giving out that kind of money? For the who who around this production, as this was being made, went yeah, this is definitely worth a hundred million. It's going to make its money back. That also is quite upsetting to me because it, it's almost certainly because it's Johnny Depp and it's Tim Burton, and people will automatically go and what? see them. And then stupid podcasts like this will go, well, we've got to pay money to go and see it to review it. I feel I feel disgusted. I've contributed to hey, keeping this. Wait, wait till we I get. May you kill yourself. As we were waiting to get out, a little uh, well, a little girl. She's about twelve to fifteen, uh, walking past me. Oh, that was really good. I loved that. Oh, she was walking out, and because uh, oh, it was just, and I, I went on um, Rotten Tomatoes beforehand, and there was a number of people who were looking for just general public looking forward to seeing the film with saying things like, "Oh, it's Tim Burton and Johnny Depp, so it's bound to be good." And I'm like, "Have you not? Have you not seen anything since Sleepy Hollow? Yeah, because that Sleepy Hollow actually. Do you know what?" 
I was watching this entire film wishing I was watching Beetlejuice. That that that, that says everything well, about this. It so, should have been good um, if it had been done well, twenty years ago. A few things that I've just taken from having a quick look about the film. Seeing, I can't remember the last film of Tim Burton's I've enjoyed. When has he lost his touch? Um, I, I think. I, well, I'd like to see him try and do something come out of his comfort zone because he's either doing um, kind of gothic animations like Corpse Bride um, and Frank and Weenie, which I saw a trailer for before this, or he's doing Johnny Depp's going to put on white makeup and do some kind of Michael Jackson or English character. Um, and, and I want to see him try and do something different. He hasn't done anything different for a long Long time. I like Mars like, Attacks. Tried to do something different was um, Planet of the Apes, and that failed miserably as well. Mm. Yeah, I did like Mars Attacks. Yeah, Mars Attacks was great. I, I think Tim Burton he was good at one point. Beetlejuice is great. Edward Scissorhands I love. Mars Attacks I really enjoyed. So he he has made Both good Batman films. films were excellent. I mean, yeah. Yes. Yes. Brilliant. Um. So it's it it's just something to do. He's got old and lazy or something. I don't know. I don't know what it is. No, but he. Since the, since this millennium, the only the only thing that I've watched of his that I enjoyed has been the Corpse Bride, and I think he did Big Fish, didn't he as well? Yes, he did do Big Fish. Yeah, Check yeah, that, that, that's a bit different actually. No, that's fair enough. Yeah, well, but I, the other problem is, um, as we've already seen, uh, he can get projects greenlit for over a hundred million dollars if Tim Burton and Johnny Depp sign up to do their Tim Burton Johnny Depp shtick. Um, the, I think part of the reason he keeps churning out these films is because studios want him to and they make money. Uh, you know, we've got to be quite base there and say, the fact is, you know, me and Jerry can slate this to bits uh, and the 100 people or so who listen to us might go, oh, well, I might not go and see that. I'd like to think that most of the 100 people who listen to us at the moment probably won't go and see it anyway. However, um, teenage girls who this was clearly aimed at are going to see it in their droves, unfortunately. Uh, and they're not going to realise that there are, you know, so many laws of film breaking are broken and not in a good way, in a really horribly bad, lazy way. Well, uh, like I was saying about the rules right at the end, you know, when a witch dies, OK, all her spells should be undone. That's that's that is cinema shorthand. OK, we, we should re- expect that as an audience. So when she dies and still, um, uh, I mean, the, uh, Johnny Depp's woman that he's in love with is still walking towards her death on a cliff. I'm thinking, no, because the witch is dead, so all her spells should end. Why is this happening? I feel cheated as an audience member. Uh, okay. No, it wasn't. It wasn't very well tied together or anything like that. The other thing I have to mention, that this film features the worst sex scene I've ever seen in my life. God, yeah. It was so bad. So I know it was a 12A, so they were pretty limited in what they could do. But it was so bad. I can't I even, you, even thinking about it now is making me shudder. You're talking about the Matrix bullet time style. <laughs> kind of yeah. wire work. Oh, God, yeah. It was it was clunky and horrendous. It wasn't... It was the least sexiest sex scene I think I've ever seen. Which is difficult when you've got, you know, Eva Green but now. Johnny Depp not, and Eva Green having a sex scene and they made it so bad. Just but so it, wasn't, it wasn't funny kind of, either, was it? It wasn't bad no. funny. It was just ugly and horrible yeah and i think it was meant to be a bit funny and it was i mean how i mean that is a measure of how bad this film is actually that you could make such a spectacularly awful sex scene with johnny depp and eva green yeah i, I totally mean, agree it takes a lot to to make those two 
be so unsexy and also unfunny if you're not trying to be sexy. I've noticed. Yeah. I've oh. noticed that uh, Tim Burton has got is producing Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, which, which is just a little bit worrying now. Yeah, he's <laughs> producing it. It's written by the guy who wrote this. Which, oh God. Yeah, I've I've now drastically lowered my expectations about Abraham Lincoln. I'm, I mean, I'm still going to see it because the title alone just sounds amazing. But yeah, yeah. it'll probably be better than this. And yeah, look at directing it. So uh, yeah, looking uh, at, it'll be better than Dark Shadows. Looking at I'm the sure film, looking at the subject of the film, just a, I haven't you know I haven't seen it obviously, but you've got a family, you've got a vampire, you've got a werewolf, and you've got a witch. Would they have not been better off just rebooting the Adams family? Do you know what Adam's family? I was thinking about what well, I was thinking. Adam's family values is better than this, and that wasn't great. Uh, you know, it it's a weird thing. That it, again, it's one of these American TV shows that didn't really take any kind of cultural root over here. So I have no fond memories of the original show. But apparently, Burton, Pfeiffer, and Johnny Depp are all big fans of the original, and that was a big part of this getting made. Um, but it's in, interesting because the original is actually very much like a melodramatic soap opera, and they, they've recreated that perfectly. This is a really bad melodramatic soap opera with too many characters, with stupid exposition, with massive plot holes. They, if they want Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. To recreate a 70s terrible uh, soap opera, they've done it. Yeah, it, it was it was very cluttered with characters. I think that's partly because they were adapting it from a from a soap, well, a, a, a TV program. But that was a real real detriment to it. Was was just having too many things to juggle, and there was no real character development outside of the main two characters. I mean, the rest of them were just there to make up the numbers, really. Yeah, uh, like Johnny Lee Miller, especially. You know, the, for, I, seriously, yeah. I don't even know why I bothered to turn up. It was, and, uh, and that's that's what made the plot so weak as well. Is that when things happened that needed to happen with these other characters, they just well, you were just like, well, where the bloody hell did that come from? That's just yeah, that's just yeah. Just you didn't care, and <laughs> and yeah, and you had things just. Yeah, like I said, that whole werewolf line was just like, all oh, right, that's. And then they didn't even really do anything with that anyway. Uh, that was the thing that annoyed me. She oh, all of a sudden she's a werewolf, and then it's like, well, oh, and that has done nothing to the plot. Oh yeah. no, terrible. Well, no overall judgment, terrible. <laughs> yes, avoid. Es- essentially, Dark Shadows, directed by Tim Burton, starring Johnny Depp, among others. Don't go and see it. Next week, what will we be reviewing, James? Uh, I think I need need to check the diary, but I think we'll be going to see the raid if we can all go and see it. It'll be the raid or the dictator. Maybe we'll leave it up to um, our listeners to see if they'll they'll decide for us. It's going to be the raid or the dictator. Give, them, give them a quick little bit about each film that might help them decide. Okay, to send yeah. Them to see well, the dictator one. is the new Sasha Baron Cohen film. He plays uh, a basically a Colonel Gaddafi style character. Comes over to the UN and it's quite coming to America. Fish out of water. More laughs uh, of Colonel Gaddafi, I imagine. Yeah, <laughs> um, 
But yeah, it, it's fish out of water comedy um, with Sasha Baron Cohen. You know what you're getting with that. The Raid is a uh, Welsh director of a Philippines uh, kung fu star. Uh, it, and it's not kung fu, it's another type of martial art. I apologise if I've just not offended. Even it's some kind of... Yeah, it's, it's another one. Yeah, it's, the, it's the new big one. Um, but that is about a SWAT team that go in to uh, arrest a drug dealer, uh, well, kind of drug baron in a, an apartment block, but he locks them in 30 floors and tells the residents that they'll get free rent for life for every copper that they kill, and so the team have to fight their way out. Apparently... It's the best action film since Hard Boiled, so I am very excited about that. Okay, well that's it for this week's failed critic podcast. Then, would you like to just tell everyone where they can find us again? Yes, yes. So we've got our new Facebook page at facebook.com/failedcritic. You can tweet us at at the failed critic. Email us at failedcritic at gmail um, or find our blog at thefailedcritic.wordpress.com. Okay, well, that's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back with a review of either The Raid or The Dictator. It's up to you to decide, listeners, or up to us to make a decision later on in the week. <laughs> our favourite <laughs> favorite 70s films and what else we have been watching in the next seven days. Jason Siegel uh, playing Jeff. He's a 30-year-old stoner slacker, still living in his mother's basement, basically. And I did think, oh, yeah, we've seen this character done a million times. But it started off with him talking into a tape recorder about the uh, film Signs and describing how its central philosophy that everything is connected and everything happens for a reason is also his philosophy as well. And so that really underpinned the film about everything being interconnected given a simple task by his mother, played by Susan Sarandon, to go and get some wood glue, and his quest soon spirals out of control as he runs into his brother, who he doesn't get on with, played by Ed Helms. And Ed Helms thinks that his wife, who's played by Judy Greer, who is brilliant in this as well, is having an affair. Romantic subplot featuring Susan Sarandon as well, which is quite sweet. And, you know, I have to say, I think Susan Sarandon has still got it, as far as I'm concerned. And this, she's this week's woman that I'm going to slightly creepily cyberstalk via the medium of podcast going to give Aubrey Plaza a week off this week uh, and Kobe Smolders is completely shutting it so she, she's old news. I laughed out loud three or four times um, but it was also quite emotional uh, and it had a, one thing really struck me, it had a really realistic argument between a married couple which I don't think you see portrayed very well on screen, that was Ed Helms and Judy really really good drama as well 
the everything is connected thing does take a bit of buying into. And in some places, it feels a little bit like the film, uh, the filmmakers are cheating by using this to explain away some creepy plot points, going, oh, look, everything is coincidence and, you know, nothing is coincidence, everything's the way it's meant to be, that kind of thing. But the performances at the heart were so charming, I could completely forgive it. So it's in cinemas now, although apparently it's not playing anywhere near Jerry, which is quite unfortunate. No, um, I'm very, very disappointed about this fact. I'd just like to publish this. If anybody is listening from the cinemas of the Northwest, you are a disgrace. I need to see that <laughs> film and you are not allowing me to. It's got, yeah, I imagine it will be, a, in a month's time, it will kind of move into the independent um, kind of the artsy cinemas because it is that type of film. It it crosses the mainstream and the artistic divide quite well. So you will get a chance, I'm sure. Yeah, the, um, at, is it the showroom? I'm sure it will play there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know when I'm next going to be back to the showroom. I might have to uh, go over to Manchester. I think it's in the Odeon in Manchester. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure the corner will have it as well. So, uh I'll have to find a way to see it because I was really excited about it. I'm glad you, you enjoyed it. Have you, have you seen Lars and the Real Girl? No, I haven't, no. Because uh, I was going to ask you because it looked like it was going to be that kind of film. But um, I think Ed Helms as well, I'm sure he, he he's probably proved this to you in this one. He's a much better actor than people give him credit for. Yes. I think he, he's he's shoehorned in as a comedy actor. But, I mean, in The Office, he's, he's funny, but his, his character has a lot more depth to it, and he's just really, really good at being... I don't know, yeah. very human in his characters, so I'll, I'll be interested to see if he does that in this one. Yeah, he, he actually did remind me a lot of his character Andy from The Office in terms of he, he had funny, he had pathos, um, he could get quite angry, and he was a bit of a dick at times as well. And it was all of that really, really well done. And it's, yeah, if people only know him from The Hangover, then that's a shame because he's a much more talented actor than that. Not that I hate The Hangover, I think The Hangover's fine, but he's far more three-dimensional than in there. I think a lot of people write him off as being the dentist from The Hangover, and he's, he's a much better actor. He, he's, he's funny, but he's got a lot more than comedy to his game. I think he's going he's gonna to get some bigger roles as time goes on as well. He's steadily building a bit of a, a career for himself on, on the big screen. So Yeah, and um, don't go and see that with um, friends that might, you'd be embarrassed maybe having a, a slightly... Uh, a tear in your eye at the end. That's all I'll say. It was um, it moved me <laughs> at the end. It really did. I, I nearly, nearly cried, but uh, it was close. Roof start leaking. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, second film I'm going to talk about. Uh, I saw. I finally saw Hesher this week. Another film actually where the it's about a protagonist, um, but he's actually an agent of change for all the peripheral characters around him, uh, and it also had the same indie slacker vibe as Jeffrey Lives at Home. However. Hesher, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, is about as far away from Jason Segel's Jeff as can be. They've only got their pot-smoking habit uh, in common, to be honest. Hesher is a much nastier, grittier film, but still funny, uh, especially the performance from Gordon-Levitt. Uh, he completely owns this film, and his portrayal of some kind of heavy metal poppins is right at the heart of this film. Rain Wilson and Natalie Portman, also decent support, but my problem with Hesher is that when uh, Gordon-Levitt's not on screen, the film feels a bit flat at times, and it's it kind of slips into that shoegazing indie filmmaking sensibility where nothing much happens. People stand around looking intensely into the distance, saying lines that could only ever have been written. You, you'd never really hear them spoken. When that's done well, I like it, but it has to be done really well. However, I wouldn't say Hesher is a failure. It's more of a curiosity, and it is worth watching for Gordon-Levitt, in my opinion. That is uh, available on DVD at the moment. And the last film I want to talk about is Being Elmo. 
uh, our, it's a documentary that is currently doing the rounds in certain kind of arts and cinemas and it's streaming on US Netflix as well actually. It's a biopic of Kevin Shields who is the man behind the puppet that so many children across the globe love, Elmo. Uh, really heartwarming documentary I thought. Uh, Kevin Shields is, uh, he grew up in a really deprived area of the US and worked and worked until he achieved his dream of working with Jim Henson and really it's about as perfect an example of the American dream as you could find. He's clearly a nice bloke and he's very talented, but there isn't anything in this documentary that I haven't seen on the E channel, the biography channel, in terms of exciting de documentary technique at all. The only thing that kept me watching was the fact that the subject was likable and there is some good archive and behind the scenes footage of Jim Henson and Frank Oz and people like that. But it had no tension and conflict. Uh, we knew how it ended. Uh, he's, you know, massively rich and travels the world uh playing around with puppets i didn't discover any kind of new truth or anything like that but i did enjoy it for being a nice portrait of a nice bloke so it's about 80 minutes long it's worth the watch especially if you've got a bit of a love for uh jim henson yeah uh, i i've been a bit unsure about this one i must say because it's it's been very talked up and particularly in the american mm. uh media um, and it's, I've seen it on Netflix US, mm. um, and I've, I've been tempted. But if you say it, uh, the comparison to an e-channel sort of thing, that, that is quite a negative. Well, yeah, more damning, damning by saint praise, shall we say? Yes, yeah. It, as it's narrated by Whoopi Goldberg. It just, just feels like one of those Hollywood true story documentaries. The fact is, I liked the story, um, but as a document, I'm, I'm struggling to see why this is in cinemas. It, it doesn't feel like a theatrical release. It doesn't do anything uh, different with the documentary genre. Uh, and it, it's just a nice portrayal of someone. It just feels like, um, at times, it just feels like a hello spread put onto the screen, if you see what I mean. Um, but, like I say, if you do get some interviews with Jim Henson, Frank Oz, um, some nice archive footage. So that, there is something of interest there, but it, it's, not, it's not unmissable. Uh, and if, if, to be honest, I could have switched it off if I didn't like the guy it was about so much. Well, the three films I've managed to watch this week, two I've never seen before, one I had, one I'm only going to give a mention to because previously we've been discussing sort of Transformers versus sort of Independence Day and why they can't do big summer blockbuster movies like they used to be able to. It's a, it's a theme that I watched. I watched Con Air on BBC Three last oh. night. <laughs> and and see now they can't do action films like that like they used to. That's a brilliant film in its genre. It's not going to win any Oscars or any awards, but I mean, as a pure action film, and they can't do it anymore. It's just I'm a big big fan of Con. I love Con Air. I love Nick Cage. Uh, I wonder what's happened to John Cusack. Why can't he do anything decent anymore? No, Connor is one of those films that if I see it on television, I, it's lucky I didn't see it on in, television. In terms of night. in terms of action in terms of action films that I like, it's like. Like the original Free Diehards. Yeah. And why can't yeah. I do an action film like that anymore? Anyway, on to the two films that I've not seen before, but I've seen this week. Bit of a theme of them, a reoccurring theme. They're both found footage films. So if you know what I mean, something kind of like Cloverfield or Paranormal Activity or The Blair Witch Project, that kind of thing. The one bad one I watched was Apollo 18. <laughs> now, I'd, I saw this trailer for this in the cinema a while ago and I thought, it looks quite good. It looks quite interesting. Bit of a you know, quite an interesting idea. Um, 
kind of an idea I thought you might like, James, as you've been pushing the idea of Iron Sky quite recently. Yeah, it, was there? Is there any Nazis in this? Not Nazis, but it's basically oh, no. a moon, a moon, <laughs> nah, a moon mission. It's not a direct sequel to Apollo 13, starring Tom Hanks. If it is, I've missed the four in between. Obvious joke there, obviously. Uh, but what do you expect from me? But anyway, they go to the moon. Mysterious things start happening. They're not quite sure what it is. They find a uh, not crash landed, but a Soviet ship, Soviet spacecraft, not crashed. Um, the cosmonauts they find eventually. Uh, but it's it's just the way sort of a film like that works is if it builds suspense because it's obviously meant to be a horror film, a scary kind of film. It builds suspense. It builds tension. There's a few little jumps. You also find out a bit about what's going on as well, about why, you know, what it is that's scaring them or attacking them and why it's doing it. It just doesn't do that. It doesn't build any uh, tension, doesn't build any suspense. It ends up just being quite boring. And you don't tend to. That's a shame. It's a really good idea that just doesn't work. Mm. And. Other Why doesn't it work? What is it? Is it the plot? Is it the, it's, the filmmaking, the it's, cinematography? What? It's not really the plot or the cinematography or anything like that. It just, it's, well, I suppose it is the plot. It's, it's not the idea. It's the plot. It just doesn't. It doesn't work. It just doesn't build tension and suspense. Say, whereas I don't know if either of you like Paranormal Activity, but it does make you jump. It does make you mm. a bit scared. It does make you. Well, basically, what we'd done after we saw Paranormal Activity at the cinema was go home, look at a load of ghost videos, and not sleep for six hours. <laughs> and, and it wasn't the kind of, it wasn't that kind of, it didn't work like that. Um, but best move Did on. Did it make you jump at all? Once. Once, yeah. And that's probably because I stopped paying attention and then something happened. <laughs> uh, but the other film in this kind of genre that I watched, which was absolutely fantastic, was The Troll Hunter. Oh, I'm excited to see this. I've got it on my Netflix queue. I, yeah. I recommend it wholeheartedly. It's, it's, it's on US Netflix. Yes, it's on US it's, Netflix. Yeah. It's, I think that's where I saw it as well, US Netflix. It's a Norwegian film, so if you don't like to read while watching films, then this isn't for you. <laughs> um, but trust me, go for it. It's, it tells the story of a group of students who are, I think uh, they are investigating hunting or something, illegal hunting. They end up getting wind of somebody who hunts trolls, and they end up following him round. He, uh, it's a sort of grizzled old hunter who hunts trolls for the Norwegian government. Um, it sounds stupid, but it is fantastic. I really recommend watching it. It makes you jump. There's a few funny moments in there. The characters are likable, and you want them to, you know, you, you want to follow the character's story from start to end. You even want there to be a sequel to follow it up, even though sequels to these kind of films are usually terrible. Um, but yes, The Troll Hunter, available on US Netflix and probably other places too. Uh, I think it's out on DVD as well. Uh, definitely worth a watch. Excellent. Yeah, it sounds interesting. It's pretty original for a, for a horror slash fantasy kind of film. It's pretty original concept as well. You don't really have many trolls. And for, and for, a, Nor- for a Norwegian film now, I don't want to be offensive to, to our Norwegian friends, but I wouldn't imagine that Norwegian cinema is booming and they invest a lot of money into the films. But the effect, the trolls don't look rubbish, put it that way. They don't look like really tacky and rubbish effects. They look really good and impressive. That's good, actually, because quite, what you quite often find on these fan footage films is um, generally that the, if there is a monster or a bad guy in it, it looks terrible. I, there are so many fan footage films about at the moment. It's quite interesting because there's also a... Uh, uh, Chernobyl Diaries coming out mm. soon, which looks a little bit offensive to the 
thousands of people who've caught cancer from it. But I mean, but, um, but that's another fact, and it seems to me that um, found footage is a way that a lot of filmmakers can get away with really terrible, shaky camera work. They go, do you know what? If we make it found footage, it doesn't have to look good. I think, and I I'm think, slightly worried <laughs> that we're going down that route. Well, I think we had that. So it sort of kicked on a bit when the Blair Witch Project came out. That was yeah. kind of a bit revolutionary. We've not seen it before especially in a film kind of of that scale. And then it died off a bit, and then Paranormal Activity and Cloverfield kind of, although it was higher budget, kind of brought that found footage thing back. And now it seems to be a bit in vogue again. But sometimes it doesn't... Sometimes it works. Cloverfield I thought was really good. Troll Hunter, excellent. Paranormal Activity, not an excellent film, but it definitely done what it was meant to. It did make you jump and scare you a bit. Some of them are absolutely abysmal, like Apollo 18. I mean, it's it can be just lazy shorthand filmmaking, but yeah. if the idea is good, I'll definitely watch one, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing Trollhunter now. And um, well, we best wrap up part one now. In part two, we'll be back with our triple build feature, where this week's topic is our favourite movie soundtracks. Welcome back into part two of episode four of Failed Critics Podcast. If you uh, if you're a regular listener, you'll know this bit is called Triple Bill, where we pick our favourite three films within a certain topic. This week's topic is our favourite soundtracks of all time. So, James, would you like to kick off with your favourite three movie soundtracks? Yeah, definitely. Well, I couldn't decide actually between my favourite scores and my favourite soundtracks in inverted commas because that doesn't work very well on a podcast. You can't see me doing that, um, but I. I decided to go for a mixture. Uh, so these are basically the three soundtracks that I listen to on my phone almost every week. So uh, three great films. First one I'm going to talk about is Velvet Goldmine from 1998, uh, directed by Todd Haynes. It's basically uh, based on a, an alternative David Bowie character played by Jonathan Rhys-Meyers called Brian Slade, who fakes his death and uh, an investigative journalist um, well, he's not that investigative, but played by Christian Bale, looks for him. It's also got Ewan McGregor, Tony Collette and Eddie Izzard in it. Really, really of its time. Um, and it sums up the 70s beautifully. The soundtrack itself, which is the reason I'm here talking about it, mixes tracks from glam rock legends such as Roxy Music and T-Rex. Uh, there's also new tracks from Pulp and Shudder to Think and a super group formed for the purpose of the film, uh, with members of Radiohead, Roxy Music and Sonic Youth, who do some new tracks and some Roxy Music covers as well. It's a brilliant soundtrack, and it it is the best uh, I've ever I've best soundtrack I've ever seen come close to getting the whole spirit of glam rock. Not just saying here's some glam rock tracks, but there's some new tracks which sound like that from that era as well. I absolutely love Velvet Goldmine, but it, it I think it's quite underrated, and I don't think many people have seen it to be honest. No, I'm I'm one of those many people. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm definitely in that camp. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if it, it, it's a film four thing, film four show it now and again. I absolutely love it. Also, it was the film I saw on the first date with my wife, uh, my now wife, back in 1990. So I've, I've possibly oh. also got a bit of a uh, an emotional attachment to that film as well. But I do think it's an excellent film. Uh, my second film is Amelie from 2001. Uh, most people hopefully will have seen Amelie. It's the story of a sheltered young Parisian lady, meddles in the lives of people she knows and tries to find love herself. 
it's one of those rare 10 out of 10 films for me, Amelie. Uh, and part of the reason for that is the soundtrack score by the French instrumentalist Jan Tiersen. Um, the music perfectly fits the film. It sounds French, uh, but it sounds uplifting and joyful. And it's, it feels like Amelie is walking around with that music playing in her head. Um, the music itself has been extensively used on TV in recent years, and it's kind of cheapened it slightly. Uh, it, quite interesting, the director, Juné, discovered Jan Tiersen when he listened to a CD of his music in the car when he was trying to work out who he was going to have score his film. So he used some of the tracks from that CD, uh, but also Jan Tiersen producing brand new music for the Amelie soundtrack. It's uh, beautiful and unequivocally French, like Amelie herself, both the film and the character. Uh, I'm going to have to throw in a bit of trivia here. Sure. Anybody who's into Newfound Glory, mm-hmm. the sort of pop-punk band who were around in the early noughties, late nineties. Yeah. Um, they did a, a an album of covers. Well, they did two albums of covers, actually, of like songs that were in films called From the Screen to Your Stereo and then From the Screen to Your Stereo 2. And they actually did an instrumental cover of uh, the opening intro theme of Amelie. But it's like, obviously, it's with guitars and loud, loud. I would, I'd love, I'm going to, thank you for letting me know about that. I really want to hear that. Jan Tiersen himself now plays um, live as a band, uh, playing guitar mostly himself. So that's quite interesting that he's gone that way as well. Um, he's also done a lot of work with Neil Hannon of the Divine Comedy and there's a few of their, tri- few of their pieces that they worked on together in the film as well. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, and my number one, well, last week in the speeches, I cheated a bit. In my opinion, I cheated by going, I'm going to have some Shakespeare in there because he is the king of all speeches. Well, I've gone for Amadeus, uh, from 1984, directed by Milas Foreman. The soundtrack is by Mozart, who is the Shakespeare of music, in my opinion. So the film itself is the story of Mozart told a little bit with uh, tongue-in-cheek and with the half half-truths and half-lies everywhere. But it's told in flashback by his mentor and his great rival, Antonio Salieri. Um, but the soundtrack is amazing. Sir Neville Mariner's crisp and wonderful readings of Mozart gorgeously performed by the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. This is some of my favourite music in the world that has ever been created, full stop. And the thing is, it's not just great music in isolation, um, but certain pieces on the soundtrack fit to such pivotal moments in the film. They're actually used within the film. Uh, So Mozart's Requiem, uh, which he's writing as he dies, uh, the Serenade for Winds, where Salieri first meets Mozart, is used. Um, the opening bars of Don Giovanni, which strike fear and terror into Mozart and strike fear and terror into us watching the film. Uh, they're woven into Peter Schaeffer's screenplay from his, uh, from his own play. And like I say, they are pivotal plot points in themselves. In my opinion, it is the perfect soundtrack. I still think you're cheating, though. It's a Shakespeare style cheat. <laughs> you can't have bloody Mozart. <laughs> You know, it's not a level playing field for the rest of us. Oh, no, I should have said oh, something. Oh, I'm just going to uh, yeah. <laughs> well, pluck out one of the greatest composers of all time, just stick him in there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there you go. Well, um, we'll move on to my list because maybe I've got some people would consider a modern-day Mozart in there. <laughs> <laughs> Is it Will Smith? Is no. Is it the Men in Black? <laughs> no. no. No, no it's the Mighty Ducks soundtrack. Uh, <laughs> no, Mighty Ducks this week. I wasn't even going to mention them this week because I couldn't figure out how to shoehorn them in. <laughs> Two of the films I've picked, I've picked in other categories before. The first one is Shaun of the Dead. 
Uh, my soundtracks have all varied between scores and musicals and everything. Well, I picked Shaun of the Dead in my Desert Island movies, uh, but now in my soundtrack list. No, you know, the soundtrack, just songs I like on it. I like pretty much all of the songs on there. There's a couple of songs from Ash, Meltdown and Orpheus, Panic by the Smiths, a couple of great Queen songs, Don't Stop Me Now, which is, you know, the main song everyone takes away from that film. Uh, White Lines by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Hip Hop Bebop by Van Parish. It's just a, it's just a good soundtrack, good collection of songs. Yeah, I think I, they all work within the film as well. Mo- the yeah, most of them are in the film at a point where they, the kind of lyrics or what's happening is relevant to what's going on in the song, which is quite clever in itself. And it's a very Edgar Wright type thing, actually. It's almost quite meta, which I, I like. I personally love that kind of thing. So, no, no, you're right. Great collection. And it's also got Queen's You're My Best Friend, which is yeah. a really underrated Queen song as well. Um, and if you have it on DVD, you can go to the trivia track where it gives you some fun facts about each song. Beautiful. Uh, which is quite a con- the film or just in general? Um, the trivia track on the thing is about the song. You know, just any fun facts about the song on a film or anything like that. The trivia track is quite a common thing that um, Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright tend to do. There's one on Hot Fuzz and it's on the um, Space box set as well. Um, Which is always something extra if you're watching it again. Next film, a musical score. South Park, Bigger, Longer and Uncut. (laughs) (laughs) I like to think that Steve's got ten DVDs at home and that's it. (laughs) One shelf like, lodged on a couple of bricks yeah. <laughs> with, like, South Park and Mighty Ducks films on it. But, as a musical, we've been, we went for it when I picked this film as my favourite of child protagonists. It's, and the, it's written, the songs are written by people who aren't musicians and then probably not really musically talented. Trey Parker wrote most of them with a bit of help from Matt Stone. Some of them are funny. Some of them are just a quiet mountain town that opens this film. It's fantastic. La Resistance medley where they merge all the songs together. Yeah, I can't argue with you there, Steve. I think it's a great oh. soundtrack. Blade. And also, I think they they they've become quite accomplished now. I mean, they've won like all sorts of Tony Awards for their Broadway show as well, haven't they? So they have uh, the, um, the Book of Mormon, isn't it? Yeah, and they. Yeah. Their first film actually was uh, Cannibals, a musical. So no, they they know their way around the tune, definitely. And Team America has some great songs in it as well. Yes, yes, it does. Oh yeah, don't 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 put your choice down. I think <laughs> they've got quite a lot of musical credentials. Really. I mean, uh, pretty, yeah. Blame Canada's probably my favourite from the whole the whole movie. Yeah, uh, Mozart would have been proud to be honest. But that so, wasn't uh, my modern day Mozart comparison. <laughs> The final film in this trilogy of mine, I went for one of the Star Wars films. Now, you could argue that with John Williams composing the music for him, you could go for any of the Star Wars films. Even the music on the worst of the six, The Phantom Menace, was fantastic. Uh, Jewel of Fates was one of the songs he composed for that, which was, which was brilliant. But mm-hmm. I've gone for episode four, A New Hope. Purely over the rest because of the, the band in the cantina. Just edges it for, just edges it over the rest. All, all, the, all of the Star Wars films, the music is fantastic and I don't think you can argue with that. They've got the iconic tunes for, you know, the Imperial March, for Darth Vader, for the beginning, for the end. But just edging it over the rest of them for me is the cantina band. 
It yeah. is one of the most iconic scores of all time. Uh, and now I'm going to have the Cantina Band song in my head for the rest of the day, so thanks. <laughs> well, as, as it's in your head, go and sing it for all of us. <laughs> no. <laughs> all right, fine. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's just, I think without that as well, I mean, he went on and did all sorts of amazing scores after that as well. So yeah, it, it kind of took his career to the next So I think, had he done Jaws before that as well? Yes, or was he Jaws had, after yeah. Star Wars? No, he did Jaws. Oh, hang on. No, Jaws. Do you know what? I think Jaws is 79, isn't it? I, I can't remember. remember. I'm prepared now. Jaws was 75, so it was before Star Wars. Oh, really? God. But, um, God. But I think, didn't, um, didn't he come up with the, uh, for Jaws? Yeah. And, and Spielberg at first thought he was just taking the mic. Yeah, because Spielberg wanted some, like, soft piano song or something, didn't he? He wanted yeah. something. Nice and subtle. And Williams was like, no, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to do <laughs> three notes and speed it you up know. a bit. What about yeah. it? And he, he did the uh, the few notes in Close Encounter of the Third Kind as well. Do, 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 do. Yeah. That, yeah, he, no, John Williams is brilliant. Oh, I love him. That that was my uh, modern day Mozart comparison. No, no, I like it. Not not as crass as I thought it was going to be. No, I mean, come on. I have, I have picked some silly <laughs> films in there, but I didn't go quite as crass the whole way. But yeah, he, I think he's got, you know, Jaws, Star Wars, Close Encounters, Superman, all the Indiana Jones in there. And yeah. I think you think Star Wars is probably his best and my favourite out of the lot. Just, like I said, so many iconic moments. Good choice. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty hard to, to come up with a single score of his that stands out with the others, but Star Wars is just... I think that film wouldn't have been what it was without that soundtrack. I think that's that's pretty... Yeah safe to say so uh, he's a great choice I've got a similar sort of uh, guy in terms of stature in, in cinema for, for doing soundtracks as one of my choices he, he may as well go up first mine not in any particular order um, like you guys I was sort of trying to strike a balance between scores and sort of collected soundtracks and I also decided to go for one which I felt really added to the film more than anything uh, so I chose Psycho. Oh, the, yeah. I think that the sound to Psycho was made up such a huge part of making that film so good. Um, it, the score was by a guy called Bernard Herman, who also did the score for Citizen Kane, uh, Cape Fear, Taxi Driver. Uh, he did Vertigo and North, North, North by Northwest. He did all sorts of films. I think he, he did the Twilight Zone score as well. He, he, I mean, he did all sorts of stuff. Um, but the score was for the psycho is it, just brilliant. I mean, the the tension in that film owes so much to to the score and the way that the, those strings build up and the, the sort of shrieking terror of the the sound of the sound coming coming out completely mirrors the the terror that Hitchcock's trying to like convey. So I think Hitchcock himself said that a third of it, third of Psycho's success and the effect that Psycho had anyway was was because of the music. So um, you know. It's just one of those those things that's really recognisable, and that the shower scene, if you don't have that score, is is nowhere near as powerful. So I, I chose it based on on what it adds to the film, really, as much as anything else. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think excellent choice, and I watched Psycho again quite recently, and you, I, I'd forgotten how how often the music is playing in the film actually. Yeah, you know, it is always kind of just round the corner and bubbling away underneath. And you're you're absolutely right. It does set up the atmosphere of that film. Uh, so no cracking choice. And I'm really glad to see um, 
Herman on on the list. Someone chose someone else chose him because he does deserve to be right up there. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's always there. It's like practically like an extra character. Do you know what I mean? It's just mm. it's always lurking. Speaking of extra characters, one film that basically the soundtrack was an extra character and made it so so good and so effective. Donnie Darko is my second choice. That's mm. my compilation sort of soundtrack because basically to get the 80s atmosphere, you just put that soundtrack on. It's like the most 80s soundtrack <laughs> possibly go. And it, 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 But it's not just any old 80s. It's the stuff that really works with the film and with the character of Donnie as well. And the music in itself, the way it's played and the way it's used, and it's that sort of iconic scene where he's riding his bike down the, down the hill and stuff to the Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunny Men. And there's just some really great tracks on there. I mean, you've got Tears for Fears, uh, you got Joy Division, you got the Church, uh, a bit of Duran Duran on there. They're called the Bunny Men, like I said. And then you've got um, they also managed to get a Christmas number one with the, the Gary Jules cover of Mad World yeah. as well, <laughs> and the actual score of it of the, of the film, which was uh, written by Roland Orzabal. Um, oh no, sorry, Mad World was written by Roland Orzabal, and the rest of the score was written by a guy called Michael Andrews, who. Really, that that whole thing, all the all the background music, all the sort of weird stonerish mood that that's created when there isn't proper music on, as it were, it's it's just excellent. So um, I went for that one because not only has it got a good score, but the actual independent soundtrack of it is just superb, and there's so many good songs on it. Yeah, for me, I think that I'm probably being quite uh, blasphemous here. That is a case for me where the soundtrack is better than the film. I. I've 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 only seen Donnie Darko once, but it I uh, it I wasn't kind of overly impressed with it. I'm going to have to watch it again because it's in the IMDb top 250. So I'm going to sit down and watch it again with a new view. But loads of people hyped it up massively to me, and I didn't come away that impressed. I, with I it. think but I think it the, sounded amazing. I think the problem for me with watching Donnie Darko is I watched it when it first came out, and I was a fair bit younger and, and a bit stupider, and probably didn't understand what was going on. <laughs> whereas, it, whereas if I watched it now, um, I'd probably understand it a lot more um, and get it more. Um, although I might just go to people like I did with Primer and say, if you want to watch a time travel film, just watch Back in the Future. It's one of those things I think it was about 13 or 14 when I first saw it. And it was like one of the first films that really made me think, geez, what's going on here? And really sort of want to watch it again just to try and figure out and get it straight in my head so it's again for me it's, it's similar to you I, I was younger it has that kind of place also to, to bring us full circle the guy who did the score for that uh, did the score for Jeffrey Lives at Home oh, which I ha- I will have to say actually I what the score was one of the things I wasn't that impressed with in Jeffrey Lives at Home it kind of oh, wow. it, kept, it kept interfering with the film for me there was a bit of um, Hans Zimmer-esque wind chime type thing from True Romance there was a bit of a rip off of that at one point and it felt a little bit like movie of the week at times so that's quite interesting because I did act, I wrote down eh, score meh and it kind of <laughs> interfered a few times so how interesting anyway we yeah, best... he offered bridesmaids too so uh, he's not exactly done a great deal of work that required a lot of soundtracking yeah. <laughs> one that did require a lot of soundtracking is my final choice which is probably my main one and it's one of those that Really, is a, it's got an iconic status, but I think it's it's one of the few ones that's classical. But I could probably listen to it on its own. Whereas I think if I had something like I don't know the Ennio Morricone 
soundtracks. I'm not sure I would listen to them on, the, on their own, independent of the film. I have chosen Gladiator because the actual original score for that is just brilliant. And some of the moments in that film, which where it's just a lovely visual and the, the score and the music is just fantastic. So um, Gladiator, completely original score written by Hans Zimmer yeah, and Lisa Gerrard as well. Uh, and some of the uh, some of the songs I think she sings on, um, and it was performed by the Lindhurst Orchestra, conducted by Gavin Greenaway. Won um, Golden Globe for original score, nominated for an Oscar, nominated for a BAFTA. Uh, I think it was pretty well received commercially. Um, it, it wasn't like you know a massive seller, but for a film soundtrack, it, it sold pretty pretty damn well. I think that and Titanic really were with the biggest sellers, but um, it was just, it's just a fantastic soundtrack and I really, really enjoy listening to it and watching the film, particularly the, the famous scene where, where Maximus is just walking through the cornfields with his, mm. his hands running through the corn with that soundtrack and it's just a really iconic theme. And uh, Hans Zimmer obviously done all sorts of brilliant things and he did, worked on The Lion King, didn't he? did The Dark Knight, yeah. did Inception. Um, I mean, he's done countless things. I'm just trying to think of <laughs> And the aforementioned True Romance, that uh, the the You're So Cool theme uh, in True Romance, yep. which really kind of pulls that film together as well. Uh, Gladiator, first film I ever bought on DVD. There you go. Little little true fact for you there, guys. <laughs> well, a long time since I've actually seen Gladiator as well. As much yeah, as a fantastic no. film, I haven't watched it for so long. Well worth getting the Blu-ray off. It's a, it's a, a great film to watch over and over again. Anyway, we best bring part two to a close now. Um, James, just before we finish up, would you like to tell the listeners what the topic is for next week's Triple Bill? Yes, next week's film, we are going back to the 70s. Uh, we will be discussing our three favourite films from the decade where cinema kind of really grew up and grew a pair of balls. We're 70s, love it. So, yeah. Three favourite films of the 70s next week. Which clearly means I'm going to have to look outside of my limited selection on the show. You're going to have to watch some, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they did recovered footage from no. the 70s. <laughs> no. I can have Star Wars. <laughs> you can. Um, anyway, that's it for part two. In part three, we're going to be back with our new release review, which is Dark Shadow starring Johnny Depp. For this week's new release, we review Dark Shadows, directed by Tim Burton and starring shock horror of all people, Johnny Depp, as Barnabas Collins, the wealthy playboy who breaks the heart of a witch, is turned into a vampire, buried in a coffin in the woods and is awoken in 1972. Also starring Michelle Pfeiffer, Eva Green and shock horror, Hannah Bonham Carter. <laughs> just to give you a bit of a warning this part of the podcast probably will contain some spoilers so if you're planning on watching the film yourself you may not want to listen on although from what I've heard as I've not seen the film myself it might not be worth watching at all no don't go and watch it that's my that's my spoiler don't spoil your your own <laughs> fun by going and watching this film that's the, the biggest spoiler of all would be watching this film no. I think I think James hates it more than me, so I'll let him start well, in on it. I'll, I'll, I'll just chime in quickly. From my thoughts of not seeing the film, but seeing the trailer a lot recently, 
the soundtrack, speaking of soundtracks, the soundtrack sounded quite good. There was a couple of funny moments in the trailer, um, but it didn't look like my kind of film, but then a lot of Tim Burton, Johnny Depp films aren't my kind of film. That's all I've got to say on it, as I haven't seen it, but over to people who actually have. Yeah, um, the trailer... I, I thought the trailer wasn't too bad, okay? Um, what we're dealing with here, it's, it's clearly the story of an actor who has been cursed for all eternity to make a series of increasingly poor films with a director who lost touch years ago. <laughs> oh, I'm so angry about this film. Um, I, I lowered my expectations before going into this film, uh, and it still spectacularly failed to meet those expectations. Problem is, the script, for a start, okay, and this worries me, because it's written by Seth Graham Smith, who wrote the novel and the screenplay for Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. So that worries me now, uh, because the script for this, it wasn't funny enough for a start. Um, And quite often, I was actually longing for some uh, stereotypical, generic, fish-out-of-water jokes. There weren't actually, considering he's a vampire from 200 years ago, there wasn't that much, oh, look, this is a bit different. Oh, look, yeah, there wasn't even that much of that. There were very few jokes. Most of the jokes came from the fact that Johnny Depp talks in uh, a style which no one talks in anymore um and some of that is really quite beautifully delivered by johnny depp however most of the jokes either don't work or they're not even there in the first place the plot i'll go i'll go on to the plot in a minute um but the plot yeah, is can I just so say the jokes as well yeah the jokes they weren't really jokes i don't think they were, a lot of the comedy was was slapstick mm. which really i thought said a lot about what they were what audience they were aiming for. I think it was definitely aimed at like 12-year-old girls, really, wasn't it? I mean, it was the, the supposed funny bits, I'm making the inverted commas here that you can't see, were, they were sort of slapstick things, like someone falling over or, you know, having something thrown at them. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a, a, a really well-thought-out funny film. I think the problem with it was it didn't really know what it was trying to be. I mean, it was serious when it started, but like it took itself really seriously. And then at times it was like it was trying to be a satire and then it was trying to be a bit funny and it was trying to be a bit of a drama and then it was back to being really serious and then it was uh, it was just it was a mess really it was a confused a me- mess, a mess is exactly what i've got written down here in fact uh, it, quote act three is an absolute mess um but yeah it it really annoyed me actually like i say tonally it was all over the place uh, it wanted to be dark and scary one minute then it wanted to be funny there was a few moments of surrealism going on there um johnny uh, it it annoyed me because there is a talented cast there and they're doing the best that they can with the material they've been given I right? let's be honest johnny depp is very good okay johnny depp does give he doesn't phone it in he gives he gives a very johnny depp performance let's be honest but he's very good at that michelle pfeiffer is good in the few moments she gets to show any kind of oh, emotion. oh i thought she was really bad oh really she... oh, oh we've got our first disagreement here excellent uh, i i maybe maybe it's just because i've got a thing for older women this week um or something I, I need to check my hormones in at the door when i go and see a film um i i thought I felt that most of the things that were wrong with pfeiffer's performance came from the source material but obviously jerry you disagree slightly well, I think the source, the source material wasn't great. I mean, the, the script that she was getting wasn't great, but I think she, she, some of the scenes she was remarkably wooden for an actor of that experience and caliber. I was, I was just, I was taken aback by 
how wooden and amateurish she she sounded at times. But uh, the scripting was was pretty piss poor, to be honest. So uh, yeah, and, yeah, and, and to be fair. With. I thought Eva Green did very well with, again with what she had. At least she vamped it up, and she was, you know, she was a bit interesting yeah. on screen. Her her character again was an absolute mess. But okay, you know, I'm going on to my major problems with the plot here. Okay, Angelique the witch. Okay, so powerful, yet she's working as a servant at the beginning and decides to destroy an entire family just because a bloke didn't say he loves her. You've got to look at this slight kind of misogynistic aspects there. Okay, oh, Johnny Depp is so good-looking, he can turn a woman that crazy with love. Um, but she hung around in this fishing village for over 200 years. Towards the end of the film, she's got, she's got almost kind of Sauron-style powers going on. And you think, yeah. she, could, she, could run, she could rule the world, and she's hung around in this fishing village for 200 years, running Still a moderately moderate successful... Empire, yeah, yeah and that, that, to me, made absolutely no sense. Um, I feel really sorry for Chloe Grace Moretz, who plays Carolyn, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's daughter, because I think she is a young actress with a lot of promise. She was very good in Hugo. Uh, she was also very good in um, as Hit Girl in Kick-Ass. So I, I thought, okay. and she does the kind of stroppy teenager thing. And then, okay, spoiler alert here. All of a sudden in Act 3, she kind of goes, oh yeah, by the way, I'm a werewolf. And you're like, where has that come from? And why? <laughs> Just me. And I'd be honest, I, yeah. uh, that was and the, the way she, cinema. I nearly walked that, out. Yeah, that line, the way she, she had to say that line, I think you could even tell that she was just like, I'm really sorry, audience, for <laughs> having to speak this line of really shoddy scripting. Yeah. She even like embarrassed to be, to be saying what she was given. It was, uh, the scripting on that particularly, that was a particular highlight oh, of how bad it was. I think I actually sighed in the cinema out loud and I apologise to everyone in Screen 8, Odie and Lester. I just went, oh, for fuck's sake. Uh, and it, it really felt, I was so angry. Um, and that bit of um, dialogue is symptomatic of loads of the problems here because there were, loads of it was just, okay, well, we need to write some exposition. I hate films that use a voiceover. The voiceover at the beginning, sometimes a voiceover can work, but it doesn't work very often and um it was saying oh look barnaby, uh, barnaby collins is this great person well, don't tell me that show me that he's this great person because all i've seen is him kissing a servant and then telling her that he doesn't love her yeah that uh, what, what why is he so good why is he so moral and you know a man for the times that show me that don't tell me that he is and expect me to just believe it yeah that was very big jump and the other characters made a bit, a bit of that as well further on into the film yeah oh yeah what was johnny lee miller doing in this film johnny lee miller was there one minute <laughs> and then he was gone just packed off because so the, the 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 without wanting to give too much away the opening of the film after the sort of prologue you know with johnny depp is a girl traveling to become their living maid and that's kind of how the story all kicks off hmm. Um, and she was in at the start. She seemed a bit interesting, you know. She looked a bit conflicted. She seemed mm. to make her own identity for herself, you know, changed her name and things like that. Um, and she got there, and then she was used to introduce the family and the characters, and then she just disappeared. And she was meant to be hired to look after this kid. She never looked after the kid once. Yeah, oh, exactly. Once. Lazy, lazy plotting. Um, and. This lazy plotting, and do you know, if it's a gothic fantasy, 
you've got to, you know, even if the rules are different from our world, you've still got to have rules and stick to them, okay? And that's why vampire films, the ones that work are the ones that stick to vampire lore and things like that, okay? Oh, that was the other thing that really annoyed me, actually. We, we're just meant to accept that Barnaby Collins, this great man, has killed over 20 people by about halfway through the film with no regard whatsoever for what he's done. No guilt, no remorse. Um, and we're meant to well, go... He apologise oh, to someone before he says it. Yeah, he, uh, and then kills twenty of oh, them. Sorry, yeah. I'm gonna have to kill you all and just just murder them. But yeah, yeah. And, and I just and I, he's the guy I'm rooting for here at the moment. And it just it that again that's a, another example of how tonally it was completely wrong, and it didn't know whether it wanted to be a horror or or camp comedy or a Peter K. Remember the seventies type. Look at this, look at this, isn't it funny type thing? Um, Helen the Bonham Carter again was in it, wasted. Um, do you know what really annoyed me though? They they dragged in Christopher Lee for no reason. Don't don't just put Christopher Lee yeah. in your films to say, oh look, we've got Christopher Lee. Let him do something. He basically did nothing in this film for about Which five minutes, and it was it was purely to have Christopher Lee in your film. Well, I'm sorry, you shouldn't be doing that. But Same with Alice sure. Cooper. There was no reason for Alice Cooper to be in this film. To be honest, again, absolutely wasted. Surely a man of Christopher Lee standing shouldn't just be rocking up for a cameo in this kind of film. Oh yeah, I know. But, was a cameo, but he got like four lines or something like that. I mean, yeah, just... I don't know what ended up on the cutting room floor or anything like that. Maybe, but again, it was just he turns up and says a few things, and he wasn't even an important character or anything like that. That so, it, it just it, it's part symptomatic of the entire mess that this was. The other thing that really winds me up is this was this cost over a hundred million dollars to make. Who is giving out that kind of money? For the who who around this production, as this was being made, went yeah, this is definitely worth a hundred million. It's going to make its money back. That also is quite upsetting to me because it is almost certainly because it's Johnny Depp and it's Tim Burton, and people will automatically go and what? see them. And then stupid podcasts like this will go well. We've got to pay money to go and see it to review it. I feel I feel disgusted. I've contributed to hey, keeping this. Wait, film wait till we I get. May you kill yourself. As we were waiting to get out, a little, uh, well, a little girl, she's about 12 to 15, uh, walking past me, oh, that was really good, I loved that. She was walking out and... Because uh... oh, it was just... And I, I went on um, Rotten Tomatoes beforehand and there was a number of people who were looking for, just general public, looking forward to seeing the film with saying things like, oh, it's Tim Burton and Johnny Depp, so it's bound to be good. And I'm like, have you not, have you not seen anything since Sleepy Hollow? Yeah, because that... Sleepy Hollow, actually, do you know what? I was watching this entire film wishing I was watching Beetlejuice. That that that, that says everything well, about this. It so, should have been good um, if it had been done well, 20 years ago. A few things that I've just taken from having a quick look about the film. Seeing, I can't remember the last film of Tim Burton's I've enjoyed. When Has he lost his touch? Um, I, I think, I, well, I'd like to see him try and do something come out of his comfort zone because he's either doing um kind of gothic animations like corpse bride um and frank and weenie which i saw a trailer for before this or he's doing johnny depp's gonna put on white makeup and do some kind of michael jackson or english character um and, and i want to see him try and do something different he hasn't done anything different for a long Long time. I like Mars like, Attacks. To do something different was um, Planet of the Apes, and that failed miserably as well. Mm. Yeah, I did like Mars Attacks. Yeah, Mars Attacks was great. I, I think Tim Burton 
he was good at one point. Beetlejuice is great. Edward Scissorhands, I love. Mars Attacks, I really enjoyed. So he he has made Both good Batman films. films were excellent. I mean, yeah. Yes. Yes. Brilliant. Um, so it's it it's just something to do. He's got old and lazy or something. I don't know. I don't know what it is. No, but he since the, since this millennium, the only the only thing that I've watched of his that I enjoyed has been the Corpse Bride, and I think he did Big Fish, didn't he as well? Yes, he did do Big Fish. Yeah, Check yeah, that, that, that's a bit different actually. No, that's fair enough. Yeah, what? but I, the other problem is, um, as we've already seen. Uh, he can get projects greenlit for over a hundred million dollars if Tim Burton and Johnny Depp sign up to do their Tim Burton Johnny Depp shtick. Um, the, I think part of the reason he keeps churning out these films is because studios want him to, and they make money. Uh, and, you know, we've got to be quite base there and say the fact is, you know, me and Jerry can slate this to bits, uh, and the hundred people or so who listen to us might go, "Oh, well, I might not go and see that." I, I'd like to think that most of the hundred people who listen to us at the moment probably weren't going to see it anyway. However, um, teenage girls who this was clearly aimed at are going to see it in their droves, unfortunately. Uh, and they're not going to realise that there are, you know, so many laws of film breaking are broken and not in a good way, in a really horribly bad, lazy way. Uh, like I was saying about the rules right at the end, you know, when a witch dies, okay, all her spells should be undone. That's, that's, that is cinema shorthand, okay? We, we should re- expect that as an audience. So when she dies and still, um, uh, I mean, the uh, Johnny Depp's woman that he's in love with is still walking towards her death on a cliff. I'm thinking, no, because the witch is dead, so all her spells should end. Why is this happening? I feel cheated as an audience member. Uh, oh. No, it wasn't. It wasn't very well tied together or anything like that. The other thing I have to mention, they, uh, this film features the worst sex scene I've ever seen in my life. God, yeah. It was so bad. So I know it was a 12A. So they were pretty limited in what they could do, but it was so bad. I can't I even, you, even thinking about it now is making me shudder. You're talking about the Matrix bullet time stuff. <laughs> yeah. Wire work. Oh god, yeah, it was. It was clunky and horrendous. It wasn't. It was the least sexiest sex scene I think I've ever seen. Which is difficult when you've got you know Eva Green. Now. Johnny Depp, She's not and Eva Green having a sex scene, and they made it so bad. Just but it wasn't. It wasn't funny either, was it? It wasn't bad no. funny. It was just ugly and horrible. Yeah. And I think it was meant to be a bit funny, and it was. I mean, how? I mean, that is a measure of how bad this film is actually. That you could make such a spectacularly awful sex scene with Johnny Depp and Eva Green. Yeah, I, I totally mean, agree. It takes a lot to to make those two be so unsexy and also unfunny if you're not trying to be sexy. I've noticed. Yeah. I've oh. noticed that. Uh, Tim Burton has got is producing Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, which, which is just a little bit worrying now. Yeah, he's <laughs> producing it. It's written by the guy who wrote this. Which, oh god, yeah, I've I've now drastically lowered my expectations about Abraham Lincoln. I'm, I mean, I'm still going to see it because the title alone just sounds amazing. But yeah, yeah. it'll probably be better than this. And yeah, look he's at, not directing it, so uh, yeah. Looking yeah, at, it'll be better than Dark Shadows. Looking I'm at the sure film, looking at the subject of the film, just a, I haven't, you know, I haven't seen it obviously. But you've got a family, you've got a vampire, you've got a werewolf, and you've got a witch. Would they have not been better off just rebooting the Adams Family? You, do you know what Adams Family? I was thinking about what well, I was thinking. Adams Family values is better than this, and that wasn't great. Uh, you know, it 
It's a weird thing. Again, it's one of these American TV shows that didn't really take any kind of cultural route over here. So I have no fond memories of the original show. But apparently, Burton, Pfeiffer and Johnny Depp are all big fans of the original. And that was a big part of this getting made. Um, But it's interesting because the original is actually very much like a melodramatic soap opera. And they've recreated that perfectly. This is a really bad melodramatic soap opera with too many characters with stupid exposition with massive plot holes they if they wanted to recreate a 70s terrible uh soap opera they've done it yeah it, it was it was very cluttered with characters i think that's partly because they were adapting it from uh from a soap well a, a, a tv program but that was a real real detriment to it was was just having too many things to juggle and there was no real character development outside of the main two characters i mean the rest of them were just there to make up the numbers really yeah uh, like johnny lee miller especially you know the, for, I, seriously yeah. i don't even know why i bothered to turn up it was, and, uh, and that's that's what made the plot so weak as well is that when things happened that needed to happen with these other characters they just well you just like, well where the bloody hell did that come from that's just yeah that's just yeah just you didn't care and <laughs> And yeah, and you had things just, yeah, you know, like I said, that whole werewolf line was just like, all oh, right, that's. And then they didn't even really do anything with that anyway. Uh, that was the thing that annoyed me. She oh, all of a sudden she's a werewolf, and then it's like, well, and that has done nothing to the plot. Oh yeah. no, terrible. Well, no overall judgment, terrible. <laughs> yes, avoid. Es- essentially, Dark Shadows, directed by Tim Burton, starring Johnny Depp, among others. Don't go and see it. Next week, what will we be reviewing, James? Uh, I think, I need, need to check the diary, but I think we'll be going to see The Raid if we can all go and see it. It'll be The Raid or The Dictator. Maybe we'll leave it up to um, our listeners to see if they'll they'll decide for us. It's going to be The Raid or The Dictator. Give, them, give them a quick little bit about each film that might help them decide okay, to, send yeah. to see well, which one. Well, The Dictator one. is the new Sasha Baron Cohen film. He plays uh, a, basically a Colonel Gaddafi-style character, comes over to the UN, and it's quite coming to America, fish out of water. More laughs than uh, Colonel Gaddafi, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's fish out of water comedy um, with Sasha Baron Cohen. You know what you're getting with that. The Raid is a uh, Welsh director of a Philippines uh, kung fu star uh, it, and it's not kung fu; it's another type of martial art. I apologise if I've just not offended. Even Muay Thai, it's some kind of yeah. It's it's another one. Yeah, it's the it's the new big one. Um, but that is about a SWAT team that go into uh, arrest a drug dealer, uh, well, kind of drug baron in a, an apartment block. But he locks them in thirty floors and tells the residents that they'll get free rent for life for every copper that they kill. And so the team have to fight their way out. Apparently. It's the best action film since Hard Boiled, so I am very excited about that. Okay, well that's it for this week's Failed Critic Podcast then. Would you like to just tell everyone where they can find us again? Yes, yes, so we've got our new Facebook page at facebook.com slash failedcritic. You can tweet us at at the failed critic, email us at failedcritic at gmail.com. Um, or find our blog at thefailedcritic.wordpress.com. Okay, well, that's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back with a review of either The Raid or The Dictator. It's up to you to decide, listeners, or up to us to make a decision later on in the week. <laughs> our favourite <laughs> favorite 70s films and what else we have been watching in the next seven days. 